Happening, everyone. Welcome to the Paranormies. I am Johnny Monoxide, and tonight I'm joined by Reinhardt von Krieger. What's up? What's up? Got coffee. Excited to be here tonight. I need. I need to get coffee. I don't have any coffee. Also joining me this evening down in the dungeon, taking notes. Grognak, the intern. What's up? Scratching carvings into the walls. What's up? <laughs> yes. Carving, carving things to scare the next people and have to inhabit that place. Ah, it is Friday night. Um, what is going on, guys? Dogbot is not here this evening. Uh, it's just me, Reinhardt, and Grognak. What's up, guys? So, Grognak, are you carving like antediluvian cuneiform symbols tonight? <laughs> um yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. I'm I'm actually scratching out old Nephilim um names like well, are you are you doing Azazel was here and I'm scratching out his name and making like Oh uh, yeah, what I what I'm wondering so. is are you doing the like Nephilim Doomer thing that I shared earlier today on Telegram? <laughs> it's easy pickings. These guys are such simps. <laughs> Imagine, imagine being a demon simp. It's like they've never seen a female before. To me, <laughs> oh, I just want to do rock art. Oh, you're you're doing the joke of what is it? Is that because the Nephilim were all male? Is that what it was? Yes, yeah. yes. Go go look at our channel. No, was, I know. I it saw, was actually not I, created by me. Was, I saw the Doomer. I saw the Nephilim Doomer meme before. I've seen it. I've I have seen it. It's a meme, dude. I've seen it. You know that. You know how this works. Oh yeah. Oh yeah is the man's name. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, no, we, are, we are not dooming tonight, are we? No, we're not. We're not dooming tonight. We have well, we have something coming up really cool. Um, but first, uh, no donations this week. And you guys can donate to the show. If you like the show, you should donate to the show. Uh, help us out. We're, we're trying to get our, our sh not our shit together, but we're trying to get our website uh, reworked. We are being rehomed. We're like a pet. We're like a pet that has, has, has bit the kid, and now we have to get rehomed because they don't want to put us down. No, we didn't bite the kid, but uh, we're, we're getting rehomed. Says the N word. What? Yeah, stop. Let me not here. Say dogbot says the N word. Is that what you said? Nephilim. No, I said we we are a dog that says the N word oh. of being Nephilim. Thank you. Oh, okay, right. The N word being Nephilim. Yes, you got. If you're gonna do these kind of jokes, you got to set them up like beforehand. I don't. I I didn't get where you were going with that. Um, are we doing, is this the new series, the N-Word series, the Nephilim series? Are we doing this? 
I mean, we've we've done the N-Word series, uh, what, three episodes now? Yeah, but that was... Plus ne- the Genesis 6 But that was episodes. Neanderthal, right? That was Neanderthal when we did the N-Word the first time. But does it all connect? Does it, though? Does it? I, I just, does it, though? I, I just like doing the face. Eh, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> you know, yellow shrug face. Well, no, that's the uh, what's his name, Thor. Is it though? Oh, right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's sad. How sad? We're, we're not Zoomers, and we're talking about gifts. And the guy from the gift, the gift guy died. Gotta hate Zoomers. The gift guy died. The guy that created gifts is dead. I know. And I know. Ah! absolutely terrible. I am going to be eternally angry in about two and a half hours. Um, and I'm a little sad right now. Jordan Maxwell passed away. You guys. I know. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Maxwell, who, who was the, 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 I don't want to say gatekeeper, but uh, he was a gatekeeper. The gatekeeper. He was, he was one of the original, like deep rabbit hole conspiracy theorist guys. Um, he, he Dude, did, he's he's been called the godfather of conspiracy theory. Yeah, he's he's like, he's got to be the godfather. Yeah, he's the godfather of conspiracy theories. He's the guy that started all the admiralty law, you know, the whole like your social security number, your capital letter name, and all that stuff, and then the, all the stuff with water and and money, you know, money flows from the current sea, <laughs> all that stuff. You have he's he's the guy who made me underwater. feel like a piece of crap for actually having a social security number. <laughs> yeah, he, he did do all that stuff. I mean, some of the stuff he he talked about back in the day, I remember hearing some old stuff like from the 90s. Where he was talking about like the Chevy Lumina and how they would name like the cars, the Illuminati would name the cars and it had something to do with the illuminated ones and like blah, blah, blah. I'm like, bro, it's the name of a car, Chevy Lumina. But I mean... And guess what? Here we are. What's that? In <laughs> Tesla, yeah. Yeah. But no, Jordan. And guess what? Here yeah, oh, here we are. Yeah. Jordan Maxwell passed away, man. 82 years old. I listened to a lot of Jordan Maxwell back in the day. Man. Well, that means that just means he never got vanned, right? Or did he? Is he being silenced right now? Is that what's happening? I don't know. He's, he's dead. He's one that I think they allowed to exist solely because he was speaking the truth, and truth is so absolutely freaking insane that at that point they were like, you know what? Whatever. I Fine. mean, it's possible. Humiliation. Well, he got robbed. <laughs> you know, he got robbed. It's entirely right? possible. Sure. He was he right. was robbed of like all of his life savings. Yeah, he was, and and David Ike kind of took on the uh role of him david ike uh alex jones yeah no no i mean like took on his role later on for real some kid conned him out of all of his money he went on red ice uh a few years uh, more than a few years ago but like 2015 maybe like seven years ago i know he's he was literally robbed (laughs) yeah some kid who was going to help him write a book uh ended up with like control of his bank account and took all of his money it's really fucked up but yeah um he spawned an entire 
generation of in like multiple genres of conspiracy theory well so far so far in the last uh eight months we have rob skiba yep jordan maxwell man hold on those are three guys that honestly did a lot of amazing work Mm -hmm. somebody else died too i can't remember who Steve Quayle, That's almost right. Steve died. Quayle almost died. He pulled through. Yeah, he he made his way out, and now he's on a freaking ventilator. Well, not ventilator, uh, an oxygen tube mm. that he carries around. It's a shame. But, um, no, somebody else died. I, I can't Mark. remember. I can't remember the name of the person. It's gonna bother me. Not actually. I don't. It's not that important. Tex Mars passed away. Tex Mars passed away. Wait, really? Yep, there was that. Ow. And there was somebody was else. Wow. Tom, Tom Horn. No, he's Tom Horn's still around. Oh, um, try to get him. Tom Horn. Uh, oh, man. The guy from Canada. Alan Watt. He died. Man, if we're. Oh, yeah. Alan did. Mm-hmm. And if we're worried about certain people coming on this show, I mean, Tom Horn, uh, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah. I'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> was he was he very religious or something? Is it is it very too I, I mean know, Tom I, Horn owns Skywatch TV. Oh he oh the guy that owns Skywatch. Huh? Well yeah then. I didn't realize. Horn. Yes, yes. He owns Skywatch okay. TV and Defender Publishing, who uh publishes all of Derek Gilbert's Derek Gilbert's works. Ah uh, okay. um Great guy. Absolutely great guy. Um, but they are uh, full-on you know, Israel believers. Right. Israel so, and Septuagint believers. All right, all right. So maybe not. Anyway, um, we don't have any... any <laughs> we don't have any important emails this week. We don't have any important anything, really. Uh, there was an update to something from Tuesday and I can't remember what it is now. A bunch of stuff happened this week. So, uh, go get your pilled account. Well, there's that. That's yeah, but that's not, I mean, that's obviously important. Go get your pilled account. Yes. Go to pilled.net, get your pilled account, get set up. You can come watch us do the nationalist inquirer. They're live. Um, not next Tuesday, but the Tuesday after correct. Uh, Yeah, that's the, that's the correct Tuesday. We will be doing the Nationalist Inquirer live and then posting it as a podcast as usual on Wednesday. Um, Also, go to dissidentapparel.com and buy our shirts. They're all being done on the new process now, so um, the colors are brighter. So, If you got one of the original ones, you got one of the original ones. There's that. I have the original ones. I'm wearing one of the original ones right now. Nice. They're great shirts. I wear I wear the uh, I wear the Lovecraft one out in public all the time, and um, I will be wearing the uh, the Spoop Waffen one in public. I don't know that he's going to be doing white on black, maybe, but uh, right now you can get that black on white, and I think you can get the tinfoil in both black and white. Yeah. Yeah, now that now that I'm out of out of a job, I can at least uh, 
uh, wear some of those out in public. <laughs> they are fun. They are comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be buying a couple of extras because you know we obviously we get a couple to uh, to wear uh, for ourselves, but I'll be buying a couple extra to wear at the gym. Yeah. Um, and I want to thank dissident apparel because they've actually been instrumental in, in, uh, teaching my son, my two year old actually now knows how to say alien Bigfoot. And he's, he's working on Anunnaki. I swear <laughs> to God, like he, he looks at the shirt and he points and says, Birdman Naki. Birdman Naki. <laughs> so we're making progress. There you go. It's a start. It's a start. It's a and, start. You and, know what? Yeah. People people give me people give the shirt looks and I've had somebody say, Is that Lovecraft? And I'm like, Yes, that is HP Lovecraft. And they're like, Cool. Like, What's Paranormies? I'm like, it's a podcast. I'm like, oh. And I walk I keep walking. That's the only thing I've got. <laughs> yeah. What's Paranormies? Don't worry about it. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> I do have that shirt actually from the day. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. Well, all right. Everybody get prepared. Put your seatbelts on. We have an interview for you. We are going to be talking to one Mr. Gary Wayne, the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Uh, great book. We, we all have a copy around here. Uh, Reinhardt's Falling Apart. Mine is here. Grognak, do you actually have the book? No, I don't actually, but thanks for a good buddy. I was going to listen to it on audio. Ah. All right, well, we'll have to get Grognak a copy of Genesis 6. Reinhardt, are you, are you stoked for this or what? Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I've been reading the book since 2015, so um, this is, what, seven years in the making? It is, it is. And we're going we're gonna to do our best to not talk about the book. Because everybody talks about the book. We're going to have a Paranormies interview with Gary Wayne right now. All right, Mr. Gary Wayne, welcome to the Paranormies. Thanks for joining us. We're very excited to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me and uh, so happy to be on your podcast and looking forward to the conversation tonight. Absolutely. I'm sitting here next to my copy of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. It's not as dog-eared as Reinhardt's copy. Um, his is, I believe, <laughs> his is like tabbed and tagged and underlined and, and, and highlighted. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is actually, it's actually falling apart now. I notice the uh, front cover is kind of coming off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I get a lot of uh, email and social media saying that, you know, they begin with highlights and they're going to start with one color, then they start adding other colors, and then they end up highlighting most of the book and they're thinking, well, how does anything stand out now? <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you've read my book and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. And uh, for the audience who may not be all that familiar with it, it is absolutely so jam-backed with uh, information that uh, it's hard to hard to remember everything and digest everything. But it's a it's it's an interesting journey, I think. It it's an amazing book. It is one of the most information dense books that I own, um, and I own many many information dense books. Um, Reinhardt has <laughs> Reinhardt has been studying your book for a lot longer than I have. He is officially known as the Nephilim guy on our show. Um, he's uh, oh yeah, wow. He's been in this since he was a kid, which was about like, like last week. 
but that's okay. Um, <laughs> no, he's he's the youngest member of our of our of our crew here, but uh, he's he's been in this for a while. Um, so Reinhardt, I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, start asking the questions to Mr. Wayne here. Oh sure. Um, <laughs> also the kid of the group. Thanks. <laughs> well, you are like by like 20 years, um, dude. Not really. Yeah, that is fair. Um, no, your your book for anybody listening. I mean, it's it's at this point to kind of a repository of knowledge. It's one that I go back to, and I don't read cover to cover anymore. I, um, you know, I will go back to certain chapters and sections, which uh, it seems that you kind of planned it out that way. Yep. Um, yeah, I knew I knew at a certain point that it was going to be too large of a book, and. I ended up taking 350 pages out of it, but I also realized that I wanted people to not sort of get into that that issue, you know, where you're reading it and it's like, oh, geez, my eyes are tired and I don't know how much more information I can absorb. So I wrote it in sort of small chapters, you know, four to six pages, and they're all mini stories that leads into the next chapter and will sort of keep coming up uh, as the book sort of unfolds. And so you can read it one chapter at a time because it's kind of a mini story or you can read it out of sequence or so it's, it's very flexible for people in terms of uh, reading it because it's one of those books you just can't speed read. I, I kind of joke about it that if you do, you might blow some uh, brain cells. So I recommend not to do that um, and just read it as you want to read it and digest it as you can digest it. But it is, uh, there's not a whole lot of loose words in there. It's all information from start to cover and it's still an 800 page book. You took out an entire <laughs> book. You took out an entire book. 350 pages is an average book. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> on my uh, sequel, I, I'm doing a sequel on it right now, and it's a little bit more for um, just Christian audiences where this book is more designed to hit people in all sorts of different belief systems and just sort of get them curious on the subject and in terms of how all of the things kind of come together. But I promise that the second book will be smaller than the first, but not by a whole bunch. But so it's going to be loaded and it's all about how much information is in the Bible on giants and beings that are related to the giants, like the fallen angels. And there's just so much information in there that people just haven't had to put to them in a way that sort of makes sense. And then they wonder how all of that sort of connects to end time prophecy. So I'm going to connect that information that helps you to define prophetic allegory in the in the Bible so that you can better understand what to anticipate you know if indeed we are in the victory generation that we you know seemingly possibly are you know at this period in time right now hmm. excellent cannot wait do you have any idea of a time frame maybe or a hint as to when it might be released yeah <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Um, I'm hoping, and and the, my problem is, is every time I think I'm getting, I'm going to be done, and I don't really hit that deadline, so I keep adding to it, and I'm just obsessed that way. Uh, I would hope it's going to be out by the summer. I'm on chapter sixty right now. I'm trying to keep it to seventy to seventy-five. So I'm hoping if I can get it done here in the next few months, I can get it to the publisher, and it won't take that long to get it into the pipeline and get out. So I'm hoping summer. Uh, but if I don't get moving a little bit quicker, it'll be the fall. Awesome. We are extremely looking forward to that. Right, Reinhardt? Oh, that 
that sounds great. I mean, <laughs> shooting for 70, 75, I mean, your uh, Genesis six was uh, 98 chapters. So right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't wait to see what, what kind of content is packed into a, um, as you said, not, not quite, you know, not crazy small, but a little bit smaller. It's not quite a pan uh, yeah, context. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be, have, it's going to have more of the, uh, sourcing that's in there. I put I mean, I have over a hundred pages worth of end notes that are in the first book, but this one, I want people to see more of what's behind the sourcing in terms of particularly the meanings of the words that, that we're going to be exploring and the types of peoples. And if I'm quoting somewhere else, I'm trying to get where their sources are coming from and give a little bit more information on that. So it re- it really is a deep dive on how many, types of giants there are in the Bible and how it affects, you know, how it affected history and how it's affecting us today and into the end time. Awesome. Well, before we get, yeah, before we get like super into the topics, I do want to say that is a, um, that's a great way to go about things because we find all the time that uh, people in our circles that are searching these things, whether they be the Genesis six narrative or, you know, any surrounding topic, because it really does come back to topics like uh, transhumanism, hidden history, um, Freemasonry. People look at information that's put out from any sort of YouTube or BitChute channel, and they don't understand where where these sources are coming from. And when they look at a even a text source, they don't quite look at the earliest um, the earliest available uh sources yeah so they yeah it's it's definitely something that people are are having trouble with um and even if those sources are you know reliable yeah exactly and it puts it into sort of a better context because you know so much of this information really comes out of the ancient writings in terms of how they understood things and that's how we have to look at ancient history, not how we understand things, how they understand things, and that they weren't uh, stupid people, and mm. they're they're just like us, and that they didn't have these ridiculously crazy uh, imaginations that uh, they get written off to have. It's possible they many of them like to do some of uh, the psychedelic dr- drugs and some of the mystical religions and things, but... Uh, that was more from a ritual perspective and how to have contact with the beings and to practice their religion more, more than anything else. So I think when we get closer to the source, we get a much better understanding of what they were trying to describe and why they were saying and doing the things that they did. And it starts to put that what I call hidden history into you know a sharp focus that really starts to open the eyes up. Hmm. We talk a lot about hidden history here on the show, and um, we talk about ancient peoples. We don't always um, accuse them of being primitive, like pretty much everybody else does. Um, what is what is your take on on the ancients, and were they as primitive as as uh, as people like to think they are? No, I mean they were just like what we are. There's a different level sometimes of knowledge in history, just as you still have that even today in certain countries around the world. But you have how I look at history, and I I, I look at the flood as being something that is kind of essential to understand history, whether or not you're looking at secular history or polytheist history or biblical history or what history you're looking at. It's one of those common things that if you don't 
place it in, whether or not you place it in to the biblical dating or you place it into the secular dating, it really starts to uh, condense stories and names and places that were on both sides of the flood. And so you have to sort of insert that. And so I think there was a period early on after the flood that, you know, the the knowledge was, you know, less limited. And I think we've seen a progression on that, although there was a, a you know, a short sort of explosion of knowledge shortly after the flood. But more importantly is that knowledge is the knowledge that came from what happened before the flood. And that knowledge was significant. That knowledge had developed to a point where we have not yet caught up to today. And if we look at the things that they were building and the engineering and the sacred geometry, the astrological alignments and the things that they would put into the pyramids, the things that they would put into all the different megaliths around the world, building places perhaps like Machu Picchu and things that we can't do today, it sort of opens up the understanding that what else did they know if they had that kind of technology? And we're just catching up to that today. So if you start to understand that they had a wider, broader sense of the seven liberal arts that they called the seven sacred sciences that merged with the knowledge of the gods or the fallen angels, depending on which perspective that you're coming from on that, that exploded into a, to a level of knowledge that they could do DNA manipulation and polytheist history is absolutely loaded with examples of that. Oh, yeah. Right. We, we see that everywhere in the historical record and uh, even the historical record that we are allowed to see because we know that you know the, the uh, timeline and historical evidence has been at least uh, curated, if not completely altered in many ways. Uh, we see the establishment, whether it's the Vatican or just academia as a whole, in whatever country you're in, they do hold a, a certain level of control over the narrative of these sites. Um, many times they completely strip them clean as well and will take them, basically shove them in a back room. Um, and that's how we learn, you know, we, we get things like, uh, like the existence of Joseph being discovered in Egypt, you know, just uh, off coins in the back room of a, uh, of a museum, you know, a hundred years later. But um, what, we, what we wanted to talk about, and it's, it's great that you started talking about this, is the concept of the catch-all term Tartaria, or hidden, you know, hidden history, phantom time realm, um, this realm that supposedly existed post-flood, uh, and not that long ago, only, you know, 250, 300, 400 years ago, that kind of contained, apparently, all of this technology, this knowledge. Um, we're talking, uh, you know, ether technology, sound technology, um, whether it's healing or uh, levitation, weird things. You can get into a lot of weird rabbit holes when you go down these these topics, but this society... That existed at one point, whether it was uh, pan-Asian, European, whatever it was, but it seems to have been far more advanced than what the historical narrative tells us. Um, these cities, their architecture, 
we see them around us as remnants and it's it's possible it's part of the theory as well that this society existed in america and that the the colonizers of the 15 16 1700s did not just colonize an empty land essentially but that they took over what was a former kingdom i mean what what do you think about this idea well, Tartaria is a very, very large subject, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so there, I obviously have a lot of thoughts on it, and I would start with uh, the idea that, again, we need to understand where the flood fits in when we're talking about Tartaria, because it is both antediluvian and post-diluvian. So we have to try and sort of understand and separate the two. So if you understand from what we were talking about earlier that before the flood, they would have been the rulers and the holders and the governors uh, of all the developed sciences and knowledge, and that they again show up again after the flood. And we're talking about the Aryans, the Indo-Aryans, Indo-Europeans, Raphaim, whatever you want to call these people, they show up shortly again after the flood without explanation. So they either are recreated or they survived the flood somehow. But we need to start to understand that they were a primary race and they were the Nephilim of the antediluvian world. And there's a god in the Greek pantheon um, that is part of the parent gods of the, of, you know, part of the seven primordial gods of Greek that was named Tartarus. And that's sort of where this starts to get its name from, because Tartarus is the god of the underworld. And in the Greek mythology, and understand the Tartarian is, comes out from a post-diluvian or after the flood basis, it comes out with the 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 people that, um, according to Greek mythology, escape from a place called Tartarus in the underworld after the flood. In Tartarus, uh, the prison called Tartarus, and, and in the Bible, uh, it only shows up once as uh, translated into English as, as hell, but it's talking about the abyss prison where the fallen angels went to. But also in the Greek mythology, the... Giants who had rebelled went there as well. And then after the flood, they escape into Scythia and form uh, four different branches of the of the Indo-Aryans. And they're known before the flood and after the flood by a lot of different names, obviously, as you get four different branches of them. But Tuatha Dudanan is a name that sort of is before and is also after the flood. And so they do a migration that is very, very expansive. And they either had access to or provided or took with them as a survivor to much of that antediluvian knowledge. So when I talk about this kind of explosion of knowledge that was, you know, shortly thereafter the flood and then started to dissipate and at a certain point, you know, it gets to, you know, a reasonable low and we have to start rebuilding that that whole knowledge base again, it starts to make some sense. And so... I look more at the post-Diluvian side because we don't get a lot of information on the anti-Diluvian side, but we get a lot more information on the post-Diluvian sort of aspect of, of Tartaria. And so 
when we look at the, the the nations that they had they had created, not only the Tuatha Dé Danann that are also known as the Tuatha Danu, you have um, several different branches of the Scythians, like the Sarmatians and the Amazons, and you also have the Achaeans, which are going to be the founders of the Persians, and that's the same branch of the Aryans. Um, that go into the Indus Valley. So now you've got Scythia, you've got Greece, you've got them going down into the Middle East and are going to intermixed with the descendants of Noah. You've got the Persians and you've got the first settlers into the Indus Valley and they're also going to migrate into the uh, southern uh, Russian region. I guess that's probably not well put. Let's call it the Ukraine, the Kiev area. And they're going to be known as the Tartars and the Cossacks. And they're later going to establish the Moscow sort of dynasty that's going to be taken over in about the 1600s by the Romanovs. They're also going to establish the Mongolian Empire as well. And so you have this very, very large block of nations that are developing in the east. But you also have that in the West, as, as in, you know, what happens in the in the Mesopotamian region where that knowledge comes from and the, that powerhouse of those nations come from. The Greek Empire comes out of that. But they also migrate up the Danube River and into Germany and into uh, Norway and into Sweden and are sort of known as the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryans or, or Tartarians or Raphaim and are the same peoples that the Nazis are going to take their ideology from as they overlay that onto theosophy, calling it Ariosophy, which is that Aryan influence and, you know, bringing in Thule as sort of an alternative Atlantis and uh, also mixing in the uh, theosophy sort of religion with uh, the real understanding and the grail ideology. So it's kind of a real mix of things that they're starting. But the Tuatha Dé Danann also migrate into Ireland and into England and establish in those areas as, as giants. So if they were these Aboriginal peoples, which they are in all accounts, and the languages that are associated with them are inexplicable, they have no explanation for how they show up. And then one sort of deduces from that then because they were ruling the people of the time and were the kings and the complete nobility and controlling the religious organizational structures of that time too, they would have had the knowledge uh, to to do this, and they also had the knowledge to make superior weapons. So the Scythians, the Tartarians, are well known for their horsemanship, as are written about in early post-Diluvian history. They're the ones who introduced the the chariots. They're the ones who introduced iron. They had full control over that technology. What we don't know is is to what extent did they have access to, and to what level was that knowledge being applied to early post-Diluvian period that was going on in the antediluvian period. And the reason why I, I sort of asked that question is because from a biblical basis, and I'm a and I'm a, a Christian, so my biases goes in that direction heavily, we get an interesting story about a hundred years after the flood. And we have an interesting character that uh, is named Nimrod. And in the Septuagint version, he's actually making his reputation on these giants. And they're known as the Raphaim in, in the covenant land. And there's many different 
names of the Rafaim tribes, but I won't go into that rabbit hole at this point in time. But understand, he's making his reputation on that. And he's going to link up, according to Masonic records, with a fellow named Hermes, part of the Hermes Trismegistus uh, mythos that it both was both before and after the flood again. So it's sort of an interesting sort of connection on that. And he's very uh, an incredibly important patriarch of the mystical religions, both before and after the flood. But in this case, there's a specific Hermes that is going to find two pillars, or at least one of the two pillars. And the two pillars I'm referring to that the Masons and the Gnostics believe in are pillars that one could be uh, have the ability to float and survive a flood. One was built so that it could survive an apocalypse by fire. So the one that Hermes seems to have founded was the one that survived the flood that could float. And on that was the instructions to the pyramids where there was nine vaults stacked on top of each other with 36,525 books, a nice solar number with that, uh, that contained uh, the religious knowledge of the Enochian mysticism, Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Jared, uh, of the Cainite line, Enoch, what I like to call Enoch the evil in the book, and all of the knowledge that he had developed in the separating the knowledge that Adam had taught to Cain, taught to Enoch, was separated into the seven sacred sciences, which was the basis for Enochian mysticism, which was the religion before the flood that developed all of that knowledge. He takes that back to Nimrod at Babel, and we get a hint of that knowledge at Babel because they start to build a city, and a city with walls, and they start to build this tower. And the hint of that knowledge comes in the narrative. It says, whereas one people acting together, nothing they intend to do will be prevented. And this 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 tower that they're building, um, they're trying to reach into the sky. And, and, and Nimrod would like to have at it with uh, the god of the universe who uh, caused the flood. And but I think that's just sort of the fairy tale sort of the uh, the version that we get down through it. All, what we do know is he built this this tower, and in the Bible we understand Babel as meaning confusion, as in the confusion of the languages. And again, the Babel story is in the Sumerian tradition, it's in the Armenian tradition, it's in the Aztec tradition. So there's something to this event that happens after the flood. But after the, the Babel incident, Nimrod stays in, in Sumer, in Shinar. Uh, Shinar is a transliteration of, of Sumer. And he continues to develop the mysticism and the knowledge. And Hermes goes off to Egypt. So you get the two pillars of this mystical religion establishing at Heliopolis, the home of the Great White Brotherhood, and the Therapeutate. And you get Nimrod and the Magi in Mesopotamia. And out of the people of Nimrod come like the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Akkadians. And the Akkadians are kind of one that really comes to power shortly after the Sumerians, after the flood, after Gilgamesh. And the, in their version, in their meaning to the word Babel, it means Bab as in gateway and El or I-L in the Sumerian or in, in Mesopotamian, or I-L-U, so you might see Babalu or Babe-L with an A-L on it. It's the same word, but the A-L-E-L-I-L -L is the transliteration of the word for an angel or a god. 
And in their understanding, it was called the gateway of the gods. And so one starts to wonder, was he trying to build a portal into another dimension? And where the heck did that technology come from? And if it didn't, why the heck would the Hecadians have an understanding that was sort of direct descendants of Nimrod as to what he was trying to do? I actually think he was trying to get into, uh, into another dimension and, and release the gods who were sent to the abyss for their crimes that they created before the flood to have them released, but it's that technology. And that would be the tip of the iceberg because that was kind of the first thing that they were doing with that kind of knowledge. And the Aryans, the four different branches of them, and you know, I mentioned the blonde hair and the blue eyes and the red hair and the hazel eyes, which are more predominant in the West with the um, Irish uh, immigration in, in, in Britain and Scotland. But you also had another group uh, that was more closely associated with the Achaeans and the ones that were like in Crete, whom the Philistines would have immigrated with and then immigrated back with people like the Kaftarim, uh, for example. Um, these were the dark-haired ones in these big, heavy, bushy beards. And they're also showing up in the Syrian imagery and in the... Um, Hittites, and also with individuals like Gilga, Gilgamesh, who you know is depicted holding a lion in some pictures, but he's got this big black beard and this dark black hair, and so there's there's a few different distinctions in the groups of these of these Aryans, but one presumes because they had control, they would have had the same type of knowledge that. Nimrod was working with, and they may have had this knowledge from even before Nimrod got a hold of it. And if that's the case, then they took that knowledge with them to develop those worldwide civilizations. And there's nothing to say that they wouldn't have expanded that to all continents of the world. Uh, we may not have evidence of that on all continents, but there's nothing to that would have prevented them from migrating um, to all around the world. And they would have set up similar kinds of civilizations then or maybe there was waves afterwards because we certainly get um, civilizations that are in the Americas that uh, are still trying to be understood as to who were the real starters. Was it the Kishimaya? Um, was it the, the Toltecs? Uh, was, that the, was, was that the epicenter after the flood? It seems to be. But as you sort of get down further stream into history, you've got the Aztecs, and then you start to get this uh, this sort of, okay, chicken and egg as to did the Aztecs start uh, the the civilizations that built the serpent cult that are in the United States and in, in the East and portions of the, the Southwest, or was it vice versa? And if it was well, vice versa, then when did that larger, uh, that other source of the, of the uh, first nations of, of North America, Central America and South America actually start. And did they export that to, to, to the Aztecs? Did they export that to the Incas or was it vice versa? And to me, those questions are still kind of left open and, and un, unanswered, which came first. What we do know is, is that that civilization goes back farther uh, in North America and South America than what secular history tends to um, indicate. Yes, that was that was very. Um, 
I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> there's so much information there. Every time you say anything or write anything, there's a ton of information to digest. Um, Reinhardt, are you taking notes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Always am. Oh, my um, goodness. No, that's great. Uh, especially when you're looking at the the biblical standpoint of this history. Uh, but even if you're not, if you're looking at things from a secular view, which we we come across both all the time, mm-hmm. um, that we are all you know, believers in the Bible here on the show, uh, we rub shoulders a lot with people who deny the biblical interpretation. Uh, we'll say it is you know a desert religion that. Um, you know, it's been altered to no end, and we can't believe anything that's come out of it. And we see people who align themselves a lot of the time with the the Indo-Aryan, Scythian tradition, kind of go into that Nephilim, Rephaim, shamanism, and mix it with Christianity in kind of a, a Catholic, Orthodox way and create things like uh, – like we've seen Johnny recently, Arianity. Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> yeah, which is literally it's a it's a full on LARP religion, basically. It's, I mean, they it's just terrible. It's like it's whole. It's if you took all right, if you took like the Hyperborean space alien stuff and then mixed in some Vril and Christian identity yep. and um, what am I missing? Gnosticism. There we go. Yep. And you would have Ariosophy, which is what the Nazis believed in. There you go. Yeah, I mean, they, they just put out I, – I just went to a channel on Telegram that was created for them, and um, and it's – number one, they consider themselves monks, which I find hilarious, but they just put out a commercial, I guess you can call it, which is a Warhammer 40K cinematic with an Arianity, like Gnostic, uh, spoken word – 30 minute sermon dubbed over it. Oh boy. It's hilarious. Anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but this, this society though, seems to have persisted, right? So even with the concept of phantom time, right? That uh, guys like Anatoly Fomenko have written about where there are, you know, at least a thousand years. I, to me, I say 700 to 1500 years could have actually been, just created out of thin air um it's possible but i'm i'm not going to you know hang my hat on that time frame um but it seems to have existed until very recently and then been kind of covered up by the mainstream societies of the world today yeah i think there's a, a good argument that we have missing you know periods of history and of course the secular and the biblical history in terms of the accounting for the flood doesn't really mesh but you know the difficulty that the seculars have that they don't seem to want to recognize is that whether or not it's a particular fallen angel and or god as as the polytheists would look at it or it is one of their spurious offspring that is, you know, controlling uh, the countries through the kingships, the princes, the nobility. Um, they are, they have more than one name, and they have more than one title. And so, 
a lot of times seculars, particularly if they haven't got a handle on how many different names that they might have, they're thinking they're adding more kings into these dynasties, right? As they try and marry up the Mesopotamian chronology with uh, the Egyptian one and try and find them, get them to mesh. They never get them to accurately mesh because they don't, you know, have a have a complete accurate list of individual kings as opposed to kings that had multiple names. So if we understand that there's that that's in the mix, and then we understand that whoever's in control gets to write history or delete history, and then if we add in into the mix that they're trying to control the information so that they can keep control of the people and lose a lot of the information into history that these were a hybrid angelic being who created uh, later a hybrid human giant offspring that were designed to enslave humankind. They don't want us to know that their bloodlines that they have a cult of keeping those genealogies and blood types and and DNA mixtures on files as to establish where they fit in that cult. They don't want us to get into that information because they're fearful because we outnumber them and we could we could we could overthrow them. And so they're always looking to control. They have to control Otherwise, they'll be overthrown. So, you know, with that being said, we have to question everything about history and then rely on something. And that's where your biases will come in. Mine obviously comes from a Christian perspective, as, as yours does. And I tend to look at things from that template and see how does it mix. But I'm also looking at outside knowledge and saying, okay, what fits and and what's the common language in terms of how it fits with the Bible. And where it doesn't, I just sort of set it aside and say, okay, I find that interesting. I need to understand how the other side is thinking on this, but I'm not going to accept that. I'm just going to look at it maybe uh, as a possibility. But if I can't verify it biblically, then it sort of it sort of stays out there. But it's still good to know so that you understand what the what the other side believes. So that leaves when you start to say, okay, we can't quite trust the history that's come down to us. It opens the door to a lot. And uh, but it always goes back to how do they stay in power? Oh yeah. And they do, and they've been in power probably ever since the flood. It seems like, I mean, or at least, at least um, since what we would consider the last reset. Um, what do you think of these this reset theory now? You've, I'm sure you've heard of this, right? Yeah, I, I I have heard of it. I'm I'm not buying the the reset because I can't make it fit. Uh, I can't I can't rationalize how that sort of happens. Um, I don't look at just sort of pockets and and say, okay, that might have worked there. But there's there's more there's more to what we know in in the last thousand years than before that. So it's harder to do that. So typically in in the reset, it you get that. Okay, now let's add in the Tartarian sort of flavor because that's sort of where you know a lot of it will come from. And I think. To varying degrees, there is 
some of that downplaying of what happened in those Tartarian empires after the flood. I mean, obviously the Russians are still not well liked in the West. Um, and, you know, for good reasons at times. And the Mongols, I mean, they were absolutely vilified by the West. And the Chinese grew to be a great empire. And the, and the Indian history is, you know, um, is is deep and and, and and layered and it was quite powerful at the mm -hmm. time and you know even Alexander wasn't able to take all of India uh, I mean which is absolutely astounding um, not that he wasn't you know you know successful in fighting them it's just how large of a nation it was and how many people that were there and the, the challenge to do that it would have been endless war and as you know as People following him, his, his army, they said, no more. We've been, you know, in perpetual war for, you know, years and years and years and years, and we want to go home. So, but there's that lost history as to how important they were, how they affected history, how far along their knowledge and technology was, and that we only get sort of, sort of hints as to how much knowledge that they could have had. And you have a lot of the advancements of modern technology, you know, like gunpowder and things coming out of China. And so you wonder again how, how, how much further along they might have been before us. And I was curious when you're talking about that one, uh, that sort of Arianity, as, as you called it, that they call themselves monks. Mm -hmm. um, that's not by coincidence. So, and I talk about the Essenes a lot in, in, in my book, and I have a really good document for people if they, I go give very specific uh, sources on in, in, in that document. But they were a, a polytheist part of Judaism that had took their belief from Heliopolis and actually believed that they had the true religion of Moses. But the important part, part to this conversation is, is that they are one of those central base organizations that the Freemasons, in part, took their organizational structure from. They're still part of Masonic rituals to, to, to this day. And they were the first branch of monasticism, uh, as in monks, um, in the West. And they took that from the East and specifically from Hinduism and Buddhism. And this is the order that propped up and propagated once Christianity had come to power through Constantinople and there was a sort of homogenization of the religion. But you also had a lot of polytheists, a lot of Manichaeans, a lot of Mithraeans, uh, people following Mithras, I'm sorry, and other polytheist religions around the Roman Empire that were going underground for fear of, of persecution to the new state-sponsored religion, and that they formed within Christianity uh, monastic orders like the Cistercians, like the, the Augustine monks, like the Benedictines, like the Franciscans, and all the different sort of monk orders today and they were ascetic orders just as the Essenes were and that's typically sort of one kind of aspect they're quite ascetic just as the Essene group in, in North America are is uh, today is is quite ascetic and just as Opus Dei 
is you know sort of infamous for being that ascetic order that was established in the in the 1930s and known within the Roman Church as Christian Masonry with the establishment of that order. So there's a lot of correlation there in terms of how they present themselves, what they call themselves, that will help you understand where they're coming from in terms of what they're talking about, and then the things that they're trying to do to discredit. Um, the biblical accuracy, because typically those groups say that, um, you know, the whole New Testament, you know, basically should be thrown out. You may, if you want, maybe accept the first three Gospels, but the rest you can't use, and you certainly can't use the book of John. And then they only accept parts of the Old Testament because they say that Old Testament was corrupted, and it's not the true Bible and the true Torah that was handed down from Moses, who grew up in Egypt, was educated at Heliopolis, um, and he and he would have been because he was adopted into the Pharaoh family, and he would have been part of that mystical culture and taught all of that knowledge. But from a biblical perspective, and I think from what seems more likely and, and obvious is is that he was a monotheist, and he brought that religion with him. The Essenes believe that he brought the religion of Heliopolis with him. And that's the true religion, and that the monotheist came about a time, you know, around the monarchy, and it kind of went rogue. And that in the end time, they're going to bring Christianity and Judaism and everything that's associated with Moses back to that polytheist sort of aspect. And we do get a, an interesting thing, and I know I'm down on a, on a rabbit hole here, but you know, in the book of uh, Jude, you have uh, Satan fighting over Moses's uh, body after Moses has died, and Michael is there to ensure that doesn't happen. Satan was there to claim Moses because he would have sworn oaths and been educated within those mystical societies, right? And that mm -hmm. Satan was there because based on the rules in play, whatever all of those rules are, is he could claim Moses as his because of the oath that he would have sworn within the mystical religions. Except that God has the ability to overrule that, and he trumped that, and he claimed uh, Moses as his uh, for all the things that he did on faith and the things that he did uh, for Israel to bring about the Messiah, to make that happen, and, uh, and overrule Satan and and, and took them for himself. So we need to be aware of um, how the various organizations argue their points of view so we have a better understanding as to how they're twisting uh, what it says in the Bible. Hmm. Interesting. Right. I, I hadn't heard that that part um, in a long time. I forgot about that, that Satan and, and Michael were fighting over Moses' body. Yeah, and you kind of yeah. wonder why. Right. I mean, what, right. What, why could that be? Until right. you under, until you understand that organizational structure mm -hmm. that surrounded all of the dynasties, you, you don't really understand that. And that you know, the religion was the most dominant aspect because the religion was in worship of the gods who created them. Mm -hmm. And 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 they were the divine representatives of the earth, and so they were the you know the spurious offspring of their godfathers. Right. When you were educated back then, you didn't you didn't go to school to get a liberal arts degree in um, you know like women's studies or something. You actually you went to study the religion, 
of you know the gods yeah yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that that he would have studied at heliopolis and would have been educated in the same way as the egyptian um royalty yeah that makes sense well Actually, that's that's um, something that that gnostics and uh secularists always bring up is that moses would have been an adept in mm-hmm. these societies, right? And that he he never truly followed the God of the Bible, Jehovah Jesus Christ, that he actually uh, was leading these people through this uh, religion that is part of their ancestry. You well, know, it's part that- of their Indo-European ancestry, which which is a um, you know a continuation today through the what we call Tartarian society. Um, you know, it gets brought down through uh, concepts like the Catholic Church, um, Jesuits, the Jesuit order, which we <laughs> we know very well uh, to be intertwined with all of this. And it's it's great that you talk about the the origin of these monastic orders, and that's something that we see when we're looking at Tartaria. We see these monastic orders, these groups, especially the Jesuits. Uh, creating these pieces or taking taking credit for the creation of this society, which is supposed to be based in Christianity, but is really based in these mystery schools. Um, and that's that's where a lot of people get these ideas that you know cathedrals were never really cathedrals, that they were never really dedicated to God. Um, they were never supposed to be dedicated to God. And they're filled with imagery that is pagan. You know, they're they're filled with imagery of saints, which saints, you know, are, are more akin to uh, gibberim, demigods, and things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true, unfortunately. And the locations of those great cathedrals, which is, um, I'll, I'll come back to the technology of uh, of the cathedrals, but they are built on ancient polytheist holy sites, ritual sites, Mm -hmm. and they're set up in in polytheism. A lot of them are on ley lines. A lot of them are set up into with with astrological alignments, and they're all sort of connected by various sacred geometry and ley lines and things. And so they specifically built those Gothic cathedrals on those sites, and then they put all of these polytheist imageries in the churches, and then they dedicated it to Mary, and in their understanding of Mary, not to Mary, mother of Jesus, but to Mary Magdalene, who they believe married Jesus, and Jesus didn't die on the cross, and he had, you know, offspring, particularly one named Josephus that intermarried into the Camelot dynasties that crossed over that bloodline with Aragon and Aminabad into the Merovingian dynasty, and Scioned into Nephilim bloodlines in 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 Western in Western Europe, and so um, we need to understand that the knowledge where they built this these great cathedrals comes it comes out of nowhere because they were doing um, you know Romanesque uh, archaeology and then an advanced sort of Romanesque after that, but they were small 
and uh, you know they didn't have any light and, and they couldn't build them any bigger because the weight was so high. This all just comes back with the Templars, who are again a secret society and a, and a knight order within the Roman Church who are at the core Gnostics, and uh, and these are all royal bloodline members like the Anjou and the Paon and the Bouillon and so many others that are going to form. Uh, the adepts at the core, and they're going to have this veneer of Christianity, but they're going to be polytheists at the core, just like the, the Gnostic orders are. And, of course, they have two Cistercians within the order um, who are monks, but they're royal bloodline monks, because they're all royals as, as, as the founders within, within the original founders of the, of the Knights Templar. And so... You also have this knowledge that they have. Oh, and St. Bernard is a Gnostic and a Benedictine who writes and argues for them to be established and gets the, the papal bull because he's the second most powerful person in Christianity at the time. And uh, in 1128, they get officially recognized, and then they just sort of explode into power after that. But this knowledge came from digging under um, the temple site in Jerusalem. And they brought back this knowledge, and there's probably a lot more knowledge there than just the building. We only saw a manifestation of that knowledge in terms of the Gothic cathedrals. And that knowledge that they say that they brought back is the knowledge that Solomon used to build the first temple. And the knowledge where Solomon received that knowledge from came from King Hiram of Tyre. And he provided the knowledge to to build uh, the temple for God, not to honor polytheism, but to honor Solomon's God, uh, the God of the Bible. But this is the Dionysian building knowledge that was passed down since the flood time, right from, at some point right after the flood, built all the great temples, all the great palaces, all the great buildings after the flood and it was linked into pythagoras as that knowledge coming down and into hermes with that knowledge coming down this is the knowledge that the the manichaeans and the augustines and several other groups inherited from the roman collegia which was the builders for the roman empire and they put that into their own Gnostic orders and controlled the Mason guilds that were building um, temples for uh, the, the Catholic Church with the diluted knowledge that had come down through various inheritances through the, the mystery schools, Pythagoras in, in particular, but it was very much a diminishing knowledge because the quality of the buildings were getting lower and lower and lower. Although, you know, the Romans still were able to do things like the Colosseum, but not doing things to the same scale that was done before. And so when the Templars come back from Jerusalem and then get formed with the papal bull with St. Bernard, they, they get control of the Mason guilds and then they explode this Dionysian, knowledge that was found shortly after the flood, which was the antediluvian knowledge of building before the flood. And then, mysteriously, that knowledge kind of disappears again. Like, you don't see that type of construction going on anymore, so they've just sort of pulled that knowledge back. But what they did do is they 
completely controlled Christianity in in so much of the Middle Ages and, and beyond with their buildings, their their polytheist sort of corruption of the of the worship site mm-hmm. for for Christians. And you know, it's one of those things that we need to do is we need to understand what their imagery and their worship symbols are and make sure they're not in our in, in our worship sites because they still dominate you know churches even in protestantism you know throughout north america well right you see the imagery everywhere i mean it's on every continent um these buildings uh now you're talking that these people built all these buildings you're talking about like all the um the beautiful white buildings all the way across North America, South America, um, the islands in the Pacific, uh, all the way across, like through Asia as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. Including, and including so the, no- uh, the, my favorite one is the, uh, Supreme court building in the Philippines. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. We took over in 1855 from the Spanish. And apparently before that, it was just people in loincloths. But for some reason, they needed um, what looks like uh, the our our congressional building right there in Manila. Look, yeah. OK, that is that is the best way to convert. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. That's it. Their well, salvation. Their salvation is dependent upon their postal service. Right. The post so office to so, the West. So, so when we look at <laughs> when we look at the modern aspect, which is kind of the weaker portion of mm-hmm. the architecture um, and, and, and understand that when we talk about these early Raphaim giant Aryan civilizations, they carried this knowledge wherever they went. They built superior buildings shortly after the flood then sort of transgressed and, and diluted down down through time so what we see today let's say from the 1600s on for uh, just sort of picking a time point where you have kind of the expansion into the new world and 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 more trade and things going on with with the rest of the world you see a common mesopotamian greek and Egyptian archaeology uh, that is being used to build all of the schools, all of the universities, all of the court buildings, all of the government buildings, um, anything to do with uh, the medical uh, communities. They're all building buildings in honor of that polytheist religion and knowledge because those buildings were built to honor their gods. They weren't built to honor the God of the Bible. When people get back to the basic understanding of the seven sacred sciences as it merged with the knowledge uh, of the gods, both before and after the flood, they had four goals. The first agenda was is to lead people away from God. The second agenda was to degrade God. The third agenda was to not give God credit for anything. And the fourth agenda was to honor their pantheon of gods. And so they would name everything after them. They would build things after them in the image of what, they, what their gods had told them to do it. And that is what dominates all of the buildings that control our culture and our governments and our religions. This is absolutely true. You can see the, like I said, you can see the imagery everywhere, um, including, okay, we have, a ton, okay, well, now we're getting into a place where we have a lot of questions for you. Uh, and we are about at break. So we're right at one hour. Let's take a quick break and we will come back. Are you cool, is oh, yeah. cool yep. to take a break for yep. a second? Yep. 
All right, cool. We will be back. Uh, we're going to play a little song, and we'll be right back.
All right, everybody, we are back. This is still the Paranormies. I'm still Johnny Minoxide with Reinhardt and Grognak. We are sitting with Gary Wayne having a conversation um, that's not really about the Genesis 6 conspiracy. I mean, it is, because it always is, but not really. Um, we are, we actually, Gary, we, we tried to make sure that we wrote as many questions that were not uh, your book related, because I know you've you've done countless hours on stuff in your book, but um, we wanted we wanted your interview here to be different. So I appreciate that. Oh yeah. Um, but getting back into what we we closed out the first hour with, uh, we were talking about the architecture of the uh, what we call the you know, the blanket term Tartaria and how it progressed and where it came from. Um, what do you think of all of the World's Fair stuff that went around uh, the late 1890s and the early 1900s? What do you think all that was all about? Do you believe the official narrative that it was all built out of wood and staff plaster and they tore it down and they're all temporary and only a few buildings were supposed to be permanent that are still somehow standing today? You know, it's uh, it's an interesting concept that they had about those world fairs. And, you know, I'm not convinced that, you know, they didn't leave something. I think they were operating within the premise. I don't know, you know, any idea what they would have been doing. The... It, it, it's kind of it's kind of like the the fairy tale concept where you know the narrative at the surface is interesting and compelling and great entertainment um, but you have to know you have to be an adept to understand what the true narrative is talking about through the allegories and the symbolism and so what what were they doing in underneath and who knows what they were doing in underneath <laughs> but uh, they were there for for a reason and it wasn't this this uh, concept of let's just see where the state of our knowledge is at which again they're very much knowledge based and they're they're advancing the knowledge but they kind of control that level of, of advancement of the knowledge as well and so whatever they were doing, it may have been maybe an even part a little bit globalistic that they're trying to bring the world together for this specific period of time that they have imagined that's their own end time that has a whole different sort of outcome than what Christians would, would uh, believe it to be. So all of that sort of works in, but I think, you know, you know, one of the things that, that they're doing there is, is they're also collecting local knowledge and kind of hoarding that back in. But I have no idea to all the different levels. I, I'd be curious to what you guys might think as to what, what they were doing because very, very peculiar in terms of the importance that was placed on it and almost a lot of the hokiness of it. So it was- there, there, to me, there would be a larger purpose that these cultists were doing because this is the knowledge cult at work that they're trying to push their agenda forward. I just don't quite have a handle on quite what they were doing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, we don't hundred percent have a handle on it either, but I'm sure it, there was much more to it. I mean, they didn't design and build all of those things and have all those hundreds and acres of buildings to, uh, to introduce the hot dog and the waffle cone. You know, just to yeah. just do that. I mean, 
you know, just the 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 uh, the incubator babies and like those kind of things. Some of the technology that was there, uh, the amount of electricity that was supposedly yeah. used, uh, the lights, yeah. the, the system, like stuff that doesn't exist anymore. So it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and stuff and specific locations would be very specific to ancient ritual sites, ancient. Mm-hmm you know, sort of holy sites in, in polytheism. And so, again, you'd have to be part of that whole organization to know how some of the sites around the world sort of fits into that whole, you know, ge- uh, geomancy mm-hmm. of locations mm-hmm. in terms of their relationships to other locations and their relationships to astrological alignments and energy lines. But when you're looking at energy, um, they're going to be on a place where they can tap into energy um, that they believe you know is is in the earth naturally, and that uh, they would be trying to harness or develop that energy or use that energy to further things along that whatever they're trying to develop. I, I agree with that. Yeah, um, Reinhardt, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say the um, the technology shown in some of these world fairs, you know, we, we see it far beyond, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years before a lot of this tech was available to the general public. And, and we see it provided in such a strange way as well it's it's always connected with these either these world fairs or with the reigning catholic church with the reigning you know religious institution of the time um so what do you think about the power of this reigning religious institution and i've got a question after this um that kind of it delves into a little bit earlier period, <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of for later. And and when you say reigning religious institution, you're referring to just so I understand which one you're referring to. Are you referring to the Roman Catholic Church or the Gnostic religion that controls all of the sciences, or both? Uh, really, it's both. I, yeah. In in my opinion, personally, it is there the same thing. Just the Roman Catholic is is a branch. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, it's it's good to 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 recognize the the relationship there that is that most people sort of overlook. So okay, so we're talking about the same thing. Yes. So mm-hmm. everything that is going on in the Catholic Church is working in the same agenda as outside the church. And you know, the Jesuits were the organization who were the new Templars that were established within the church um, to replace the the Templars after 1307 when when they were taken down. And so that agenda is directionally the same. They're different sort of pieces of the same organizational structure, but they're, they're, they're all working towards the new Babylon, which is what the Templars had described, what they were trying to do within the, um, within the Catholic Church. And, of course, you know, the Jesuits, they were sponsored by an interesting individual whose last name was Borgia. 
when Ignatius of Loyola had his first merry apparitions in terms of drafting him in through these initiations uh, visions uh, with this uh, this merry apparition to become the new soldier to create and change the new the, the Roman Church to create that new Babylon and so you have Borgia who is the Grand Master at the Montessa order, yeah, the Montessa order, which was created in 1307 by the King of Spain to get possession of all of the Spanish Templar treasures because they didn't want them going anywhere else. And so Borgia is one of the bloodline of the Borgia popes, and there's several Borgia popes throughout the history. And so he's part of the black nobility, and he's part of this uh, secret society that's a royal Masonic order. So he sponsors Ignatius of Loyola, and he ensures, he and the King of Spain ensure that he's going to be, uh, become a official bull uh established order and they get control of the education uh, very quickly and then later seminary schools and and then the banking which is just huge to them um and they get that uh by the time of the third leader of the jesuit who is the grandmaster borgia again he takes over that society <laughs> and, the, and and jesuits interpret everything through the seven sacred sciences and through the Egyptian religion. They view, they interpret the Bible through that. So understand this is a Masonic organization that, you know, replaced the Templars. We now have a Jesuit Pope. But getting back to the question that you're talking about, in terms of how, you know, how did it work in terms of the reigning religious institution, in terms of their agenda, uh, I think it is one of those things where you're trying to, in partnership, assert this cult knowledge, this knowledge cult globally, and to develop the things that you're going to need to be developing to about the new Babylon, the, the, the thousand-year reign uh, of, of Antichrist, uh, as they're sort of seeing it. They're not going to see a split that's going to happen, but uh, that's a different rabbit hole. But they're trying to bring this, this whole end time about. And they're going to need technology developed and the power to develop that can sustain that technology so that they can stand up to the God of the Bible and his loyal angels in the end time. And so what's trying to be done through this, I think, this is and just sort of going with the development of the technology sort of ideology with their end goal in mind, is, is that they are preparing the world to get up to speed so it could be like the days of Noah, so that they can stand with all of these beings that they're going to introduce as being you know, part of the galactic family is in the Babylon 5 uh, series. And, and, and for us to sit at that table and to ward off the evil uh, God of the Bible, as they would call it, sort of as he's depicted in the Doctor Strange movies where they're trying to win this little realm, the Earth, 
uh, in a negotiated truce uh, to be away from God. As you know, Isaiah 14 talks about just as what Antichrist is going to do in Daniel 8 and what they're doing, you know, in the last three and a half years and trying to change the times and everything else and set up this uh, false counterfeit millennium and to deceive humankind to make sure that they're going to be led into total obliteration is what their uh, intent was uh, and is because the, the people following the fallen angels and, and the, the, the demon spirits, they're deceived by them. Uh, the demon spirits and the uh, fallen angels know that resurrection is uh, it's over and they're going to the lake of fire so they're just trying to destroy as many people as possible since then but they you know their, their, their rebellion is over and so I think it's all trying to develop technology so that they can make a plausible case that can stand up so when we roll that sort of forward to Revelation 9 you have all of these crazy type of beings and all of these logically changed beings that are war, and I think that's the technology in part trying to to uh, develop. And so I look at that as being you know, that counterfeit Armageddon in Revelation, same as Joel one and two, because it's the same type of being. It's the same wars in Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine that happens before Antichrist comes to power. And credit for that win. Um, as his again, so I think I don't. I got a little bit sort of downstream again, but if you're trying to develop these types of weapons, you need to be able to access power the ancients had. When we look at them making, building these buildings, and moving these blocks in place, they had to have a technology we don't have today. And to do it with tools and the precision that we can't do today, they had a technology and science that's more advanced than we had today. And to create all of these hybrid beings that are in polytheism, whether or not it's... Um, so when we look at the... Uh, the ability to create these biological weapons. And we understand that with a concept or to create biological beings for years and DNA manipulation. We understand that today as they've coined the term chimera. Chimera was a being that was in Greek mythology that had different parts to, you know, many different types of animals. This is the same technology. And again, they tend to label their sciences after their gods, after their history, after their genealogy. And so you can sort of read into that, that they're trying to, again, sort of catch up on every level to where they would have been before the flood that brought about the first apocalypse. So I think when we look at what was really sort of going on with the, uh, the world fairs, I, I do think it was based on certain sites where they could have access to that power and for all the other agendas that, you know, that they had um, to bring about the end time. And it's all part of that pre-planned um, agenda that they have. That makes, that makes sense. Um, yeah. We, we all agree here that the, uh, there's only one real uh, religion. I don't think it's ever really changed hands either. It's 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 been the religion in charge ever since they founded it. It, it it's part of the ancient organizational structure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, again, it, it always has been, always will be. And you know, after even after Babel, I mean, monotheism absolutely disappears. Whether or not it was had it even disappeared before Nimrod take to power, took power, we don't know. I mean, we don't know and his sons were, you know, the progenitors after the flood. But you know, God has to recruit Abraham down the road to bring back monotheism, like the whole world. Oh dominated by polytheism from that point forward except for the island that's going to become Israel. So I don't I don't know that I think that monotheism totally disappeared at that point. I mean no, monotheism could have existed in the form of the worship of the dragon or Shimihaza. You know yeah. Shimihaza is um you know I've been reading uh Dr. Derek Gilbert's brand new book uh, uh the second coming of Saturn. And Shemihaza seems to be, if you believe the Book of Enoch, um, quite a central figure in polytheism. And even if you do believe in polytheism, this figure seems to have been uh, perfect for some of these cultures as kind of a foil, you know, becomes the unleal to God's Anki. In some ways. Yeah, you know, I think when we look at the religions, polytheist religions around the world, they're the same religion. They just have different vernacular names for the same gods. It's the same pantheon that was there, you know, before the flood and it's after the flood. I mean, after the flood, you may have the offspring gods, but it's the same religion that's taking over. And right. so when we look at Azazel and Shemiaza, Shemiaza is not really a Hebrew name right uh in in whole it's it's like a corrupted name and azazel on the other hand it ends in el like gabriel and you know michael and uriel that we get and raphael out of the apocrypha of the old king james version bible but not shemiaza but the word shem it you know and if you look at the phrase in genesis 6 4 with uh, the mighty ones and the men of renown that is from the root word shem which means sort of famous and or infamous depending on the reputation that they had built and equally from shema uh, which is the singular form of shemaim which is the heavens or the heavenly ones with the i am being the the male plural and so heaven as in the heavenly ones. And so you get sort of part of that name in terms of that it could be another title for Azazel because they seem to be almost having the same type of powers and they're both kind of the chief of the watchers in, in the book of Enoch. So that's why there's a lot of speculation that they're sort of split down the road. And Yaza is kind of an Eastern sort of Zen sort of word that means God or an angel. So I think the corruption in there is, is it, may, it should have been more like, you know, Shemial or something like that. But it seems to me that it's probably just, the same kind of angel. And this angel that's Zazel or, or uh, Shemiaza is, you know, the leader of the watchers. He's the scapegoat that Leviticus 16 talks about in terms of the second goat, scapegoat that's sacrificed without explanation on the Day of Atonement. And that's the Hebrew word Zazel. 
And so when we look at Azazel, he ought to have cross-polytheist religion importance, but we just may not recognize the name. And he should be very, very high up. Um, and he is the one that is thrown into the abyss in the book of Enoch as the leader of the watchers. And he's the one all the sins are poured on in the book of Enoch for all of the crimes that took place. He's the scapegoat in terms of sort of extending what that sort of analogy is. He's the destroyer god of the antediluvian world. He's like the well, war god. And so when you look at Abaddon and Apollyon, both of those words in Greek and Hebrew mean destroyer. And, you know, you get the word of the god of forces that Antichrist is going to honor in the end time, and that's the Hebrew word maus, and it's rooted in the Hebrew word as and azaz, which is the prefix or the compounding of the word for azazel, and both of those words mean forces, stronghold, strong, power, that type of thing, which is, again, a, you know, sort of a perfect sort of an analogy as to whom Antichrist might be worshipping in terms of his wars. He's honoring a god of forces, right? Uh, the god azazel. And so I would look at the war gods and the destroyer gods like Shiva, for example, which, you know, you know, appear as being part of the representation of rituals and things associated with CERN. And of course, CERN is not an acronym, as most people think. Um, that's just the superficial sort of aspect of it. As you understand the uh, the watchers and you understand how do satyrs fit in and sa'ir is the hebrew word that means hairy watcher i'ir is the word for watcher that shows in daniel four four times from the throne of god where the seraphim were, are located with the other watchers the archangels cherubim and the ophanim which are the wheel um, angels that are depicted in ezekiel one and ten um, you have this understanding that these are degraded sort of gods of some sort. And they're degraded from Seraphim Watcher, a serpent-faced watcher angel with six wings, a dragon angel, so to speak, and where all the sort of the dragon imagery and serpent imagery comes within the gods around the world, whether or not you're talking about Quetzalcoatl or the Nagas, the dragon creator gods, or Osiris or Anki on Lael, Zeus. They, I mean, they all have this serpentine sort of imagery that's associated with them as, with, as being sort of seraphim angels as fallen ones. You have gods that are now in the polytheist pantheon that kind of show up after the flood. Um, and again, that's why I, I like to understand where these terms come in and how it fits into history, both monotheist from a Bible perspective and or monotheist or polytheist from worshiping one or many fallen angels, as I think one of your points were. Um, so we do have to be careful with that term. Uh, I stand corrected. I generally tend to generalize on that. But the pan god is a goat god. Baphomet is the god of the Templars, is a goat god. Bacchus of the Romans is a goat god. Of the Etruscan pantheon that 
replaced a predecessor in the older version of, of the Roman pantheon. They actually have a goat god named Cern. And in the Druidic, Celtic religion of Wales and that general area, uh, that god would be known as Cernunus. So I think you have this correlation across the different cultures through the analogy of a destroyer god, a war god, and then after the flood, they're, they're sort of representative as being you know, a goat god. And that's where it all sort of comes together in that imagery at, at CERN because they're trying to get Azazel out of the abyss. Well, we've spoken with, uh, with an author named Scott Howard recently. And um, Scott Howard and Wayne McCroy, who both discussed um, kind of the – What could you say? The society that we see today, um, Wayne McCroy actually has written a book recently called The Demica Pan, um, focusing on the mythological importance of and the good god symbolism that we see. Um, and I think that is very important. Azael or Azael whatever his identity is um i seem to lean towards you know him being kind of mixed with shemiaza um and shemiaza being a very important being um equated with chronos saturn uh possibly the hurrian kumarbi their gods <laughs> you know we see we see these mixtures um yeah, I, I would agree with that, that he would be the most important god that we see, right, in ancient polytheism. So he'd be a parent god, and he would be the male parent god. But I would also, and then you would place Satan sort of above all of that. Right. Right, like there is, there is a leader or a couple of leaders. There is a coalition, almost. Um but we can't deny that there are some, you know, powerful leaders among this group that do have identity. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask um, in regards to the Catholic Church, the Jesuits, the monastic orders that we know to be uh, spurious in nature, one of the intrinsic possibilities of the Phantom Time Conspiracy, the Jesuits, is the knowledge that some of the maps of ancient history, and not even ancient, uh, the past 500 years, show continents that don't seem to exist on our maps today, or they show our continents, but are in completely different manners. Uh, they show a J instead of a one in a year. Let's say it would say uh, uh, 1587. It would say J187. Uh, what do you think about this? The Jesuits are, are very intertwined with the, ex the exploration of the new world. I've known and spoken to several Jesuit priests, actually, from Guam and, and several other like Pacific Islands. Um, that are in that tradition of creating this history. Oh, what do you think? 
Yes, and it, it starts to answer the questions why they're on the cutting edge of all the original New World exploration to control how that history would play out, control the information, and uh, you know, set the sort of sort of the whole tempo for how people are going to view that that, that period of history. And when you look at where the Jesuits um, take their spiritual guidance from. It's that ancient history. And this, these are, um, you know, the adepts at the, at the level of the Jesuits would be like adepts at other levels. And they're using sources um, that we don't have and all throughout their history that they have. You can't make a plausible explanation how they would have had maps that they're recreating themselves with their own sort of markers put in it. I would expect maybe Jay might be one of those. Um, and for, and, and who knows how many different meanings that that Jay that gets introduced into our uh, English language has in terms of ritualist sort of meanings, because, you know, it sort of comes out of Greek as an I as opposed to a J, but then the J shows up with the King James Version uh, Bible and the language sort of at that period of time being introduced. But it's the, it's these maps that show, as you say, different shapes and different locations of the continents. And then the most unbelievable aspect of the accuracy that we can tell from some of our technology today of Antarctica that's not shown covered in snow. So this knowledge comes from somewhere. These maps may not be as the ones that we see today be antediluvian, but they would have been copied from perhaps that antediluvian knowledge because the only time I think that you could have had Antarctica visible would be sometime either so far in the past or before the flood and in conjunction with maybe the cataclysmic destruction of the flood um, Iceland becomes covered or this knowledge is passed down to them by the fallen angels as to where um, Antarctica is and they done in an accurate manner to what our technology is now telling us you know the shape of that continent looks like I think this is antediluvian-based knowledge. I think it's connected to the knowledge that was imparted and merged with the seven sacred sciences developed by Enoch, son of Cain, that developed into the mysticism and mystery schools that were both before and after the flood. And noting that secret societies take their beginnings to those patriarchs that are listed in Genesis uh, in terms of the descendants of Cain and with particular reverence to, you know, Cain, Enoch, Lamech, uh, Jubal, Jubal, um, Nama, and Tubal-Cain. They are you know, the most significant patriarchs. And so that's the knowledge that they believe they inherited that was originally discovered shortly after the flood, whether or not you believe their accountings of how it shows up at uh, Babel or not, this is where their belief system comes from. And I think there's many different locations to that knowledge today. Obviously, the Vatican has collected significant amounts of that information and, and keeps it in storage. 
the Royal Society, which is controlled by the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons and controls all education and science even to this day and is the, you know, the last of the sorcerers and the first is the scientists, as they like to call themselves, and you know, begat in 1662, uh, has been collecting this knowledge ever since. And they have branches sort of all over the world. So the Smithsonian Institute, for example, is funded by James Sisson, who was a Rosicrucian and a member of the Royal Society. And of course, they do the exact same things the Royal Society was doing. So whether or not it's the secret societies or it is the Vatican, uh, they're collecting this knowledge and they're using it for their own purposes. And they always have and they always will. And we need to be aware of that knowledge in terms of how they're presenting it to us and how they will present it to us uh, as we get closer to the end time, because it's not going to be the whole truth. It's only going to be the manipulated version as it fits into their agenda and how they want to use it to to achieve their agenda. So, Gary, speaking about the the half-truths or whole-truths, actually, um, what do you believe about the, quote, content of Antarctica? We see a lot of times uh, theories about uh, biblical cosmology that you know, our realm is actually not a sphere, it's not a globe, that, you know, it's it's not quite flat, flat earth being, you know, a pejorative term, um, but that it is a realm that is not, you know, spinning through space at 666 miles per hour or whatever, um, <laughs> and we are stationary with the firmament created by God and that there may be an ice wall around us, if not an ice wall, at least other continents around us and islands that are covered in ice. We hear a lot of things. Um, yeah. It's crazy. What, oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what may you believe about, you know, what our world is like? Because in, in my opinion, uh, which I align with the Bible, the Lord tells us that we will never understand fully the extent of this realm. But what do you, what do you think about what is said here? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, whether it's flat earth or a dome or, or a globe, what we do know is biblically is a few things. Um, you can make an argument for a domed earth with some of the scriptures you can make an argument from those same scriptures for a full globe most of the ancient depictions of the earth as they sort of understood it was sort of a domed version on the top half and then underneath was kind of where the underworld was right mm -hmm. uh, as they sort of understood it um you know i'm to me, I'm, I'm a bit agnostic on it, but here's what, what I do know is, is that something is going around something uh, because it's the only way we can sort of reconcile things like, um, in terms of some of the, uh, the eclipses, that something would have to be going around something to make that happen. So whether or not the Earth is going around the sun or the sun is going around the Earth, to me doesn't really matter 
Um, but something, you know, is going around, around something and you have to be able to rationalize and I've seen it. So, uh, you know, I've gone to the North, I'm from Canada. I've gone up there on the July long weekend to fish and it's light all, all year round. I know when it's dark all year round. So there's, there's things that we have to sort of recognize that can't be sort of faked, you know, and I've witnessed some of those simple things. So, I also know biblically that the firmament is a little bit larger than most people sort of describe it as. So if you look at the word heaven, it's broken in down into three separate meanings, which is, again, that word uh, uh, Shema that I was talking about before. And the heavens would be Shemaim as well. And so you have one heaven is where God dwells in, in the spiritual realm. You have two other heavens that we need to understand, and one is is the firmament, and then the other one is whatever's outside the firmament is the rest of the heavens. So we know there's a pretty big place out there. How big, we don't know, but we know it's pretty big. But within the firmament are the lights that includes the sun. So however far away the sun is, whether it's 93 million miles or less, um, I'll leave the people to speculate it, but we know it's a fairly large area underneath that, um, underneath that uh, firmament, and there has to be a distance if the sun is producing that amount of light, and unless it doesn't produce any heat or it doesn't produce anything that is damaging. I mean, you have to have some distance there. So when I look at all of the all the different arguments, is that I also have to factor in what the the mystery schools and stuff used to believe. And they used to build these models of that sort of flat earth. So I'm quite suspicious of whether or not the flat earth uh, ideology is actually maybe coming out of, you know, infiltrators from polytheism to sort of, you know, get Christians kind of distracted or fighting amongst themselves. What I do know, though, is is neither science or our education um, or our uh, religious institutions, Christian or otherwise, are providing us good information on this. And I think we have to sort of rely on what is in the Bible and and what is that we that we see with our eyes and we can tangibly sort of make sense of. But at the end of the day, it's kind of irrelevant because even though it would be a great deception, there's bigger deceptions than that than what they're going to perpetrate in in, in the end time. Um, so, like I said, I'm agnostic on, on Flat Earth, but I kind of lean away and I get the arguments. But you would spend a lifetime trying to prove it or disprove it. And... To me, that's not my mission, and it just to me, it's 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 not that that big of a question for me. I know it's an interesting topic, and there's a lot of passionate debate, debate on both sides. Um, but at the end of the day, there's something kind of circular that's got to do with 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 the Earth, and something is going around something. And as far as Antarctica goes, what's going on down there? I mean, it's nothing but craziness in terms of story. So it's really hard to define what is misinformation again and what is real. What I do know there's, there's there's been over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, way too many important people 
traveling there on a regular basis for there to be not something that's there. And Mm -hmm. I would suggest that there's something there that is going to, as they say, at the adept level, as they start to accept Satan as their God, um, that it will overturn every preconceived uh, viewpoints when that knowledge is released. But we have to be very careful that they're manipulating it, and it's going to be designed to lead people away from God. It's going to be designed to discredit God. It's going to be designed to to degrade God, and it's going to be designed to honor the pantheon of gods. And if we understand it through that lens of whatever they're going to bring out, we ought to be able to uh, discern what the lies are with the information that they're bringing out and rely on what our Bible really says and what it doesn't say. Right. And you have to go, well, you have to go by the Bible there. I mean, and, and again, like you said earlier, you can go either way with those verses. There are, what is it? 242 verses in the Bible that talk about the shape or whether or not the earth moves. Um, and you know, the, the globe earthers use those same verses that the flat earthers use. Um, I don't know. I think, yes. uh, like you said and, earlier, and, and and when you take it back to Greek and Hebrew, you're still you can go either way with the meaning, right? Because right. you have to make choices, and you, you do. But um, I think one of the one of the things you said that um, one, it doesn't seem to be all that important. Uh, one of the reasons I I feel that it is important is because the whole point of the globe and science and space and the infiniteness and vastness of space and all of that. Um, is designed to take you away from God and to prove that God doesn't exist. That like, this is that a far even the Christians that believe in the far away God, kind of, in my opinion, miss the point. But that's that's like for an entirely different podcast. <laughs> um, I know that you could do an entire episode on that stuff. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely we could. Um, but okay, so you lean away from flat Earth, is what you're saying, a little bit. Okay. Gotcha. But again, I mean, whether it's flat or not, to, to make things work, something's got to be rotating. Oh, something has to be something. moving. Oh, absolutely. Need enough space yeah. for that. Oh yeah, there has to. Yeah, yeah. there has to be yeah. far, far enough away to do the, to do the things with the eclipses and all the others, all the other astronomical things that we see with yep. the sun and the moon. Um, well, go ahead, Ron. Well, one thing, one thing that we do know is that there is a focus on the kingship of this earth, right? I mean, we all, we all can here agree that the rule of this realm is focused on mankind, right? Mankind that is descended of Adam. Yes. And, and their objective was to ensure that we wouldn't be raised up like angels. Right. So they want to control us and justify their rebellion. And that's why they did so many different revenges against us. And, you know, from the fall of Adam to the creation of the giants to giants again showing up after the flood to trying to kill Jesus. The thing that they didn't anticipate, as the book of Corinthians tells us about, was the resurrection. 
And so they were hoping to kill uh, Jesus when he was on earth. And ultimately, he, he did atone for, for, for our sins. But as the book of Corinthians clearly sort of states, is that had they known about the resurrection, they would have ensured he wasn't crucified. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, well, that's, we, got, we covered the flat earth question here, Reinhardt. That, that wasn't on the list. <laughs> uh, I closed out the document because I thought we were just going to stay with what we were talking about. Um, go ahead, pull something well, else up. Um, sure. So we're talking about these societies that existed, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. And you mentioned at the end of last hour, beginning of this hour, the uh, the Mongolian Empire. Mongolian Empire and uh, the Scythians, right? They did not just disappear. These peoples, uh, that's something that everybody makes a mistake with, that people simply disappear, they assimilate, they just disappear from the uh, historical record. But it's not possible, right? The true Israelites of Joshua, those of Jacob that went into Canaan, many of them did go and assimilate into the Western European or Eastern tribes. They did do that. And peoples don't just die out at that point. So when we look at what is called, quote, Tartaria, as a catch-all civilization, we're looking at the Romanovs who supposedly took over the Tartarian society. We're looking at Genghis Khan, who most likely didn't exist, and if he did, was a collection of you know Indo-European, white-skinned, uh, red-haired, green or hazel eyes people uh we'd look at the timurid empire of the time which stretched down into you know the indus valley what do you think about these peoples uh <laughs> these peoples had incredible technology apparently could they be connected with who was here in America beforehand? Oh, I think I think they were very much connected to them. I mean, you look at you know the skulls that were discovered in Peru, or the giant skulls and bones as, as the descriptions come down in in North America. I mean, one of the first things you learn is is they're almost all with their elongated skulls with red hair, right? Um, and so red hair was as significant as we talked of one of the significant traits of you know the three different sort of descriptions that we talked about. And as you mentioned, Genghis Khan had red hair and, and gray eyes and uh, is depicted in uh, contemporary sources of the time as being more white than anything else. And the Mongolians were, were taller and different than, than, the, than the Chinese. So, and, you know, even Marco Polo referred to the Mongols as Scythians. 
and uh, the Mongols were great horse riders, as 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 uh, you know, as we talked about. So they controlled the uh, the upper levels of society wherever wherever they went because they were bigger in the beginning, and they would intermarry for as long as they could within themselves. But as you know, the Ugaritic text, as it talks about the Raphaim and the Raphaim, and understand that the Horim are uh, part of the Raphaim tribes, and you take that back to Hebrew, it, it basically means you know cave dweller and hairy. But it also you get into the root words, it talks about this white skin again, and they were known as fair, as being uh, good looking, and fair was recognized as this pale white skin. And so you get these, these, these sort of common sort of traits in terms of who these giants were that were intermarrying. But as the Ugaritic text, as I was talking about, said that they, they were having reproduction issues. They're, they were infertile. And they were requiring humans uh, to be intermarried with to be able to continue to procreate. Now they would do it in limited quantities, so you wouldn't have the human sort of DNA and bloodlines overwhelm, but they would do it because they had to. And also, you know, not only to procreate, but also the blood diseases would start coming in. So as we understand that today, we'll have the royals, uh, and notice the spelling of that, that's the kings of God, Roy, as you go back into etymology and AL or EL as being gods with the divine right to rule, they would intermarry to keep those bloodlines as pure as possible, but hemophiliac disease, Habsburg, jaw disease, those types of diseases would start to, to, to enter in. And so they would have to go further sort of out of their intermarriage uh, circle to, to do that. And as they did that over time, their looks began to change and their size begins to shrink because there's just too much of that that has to happen. But there's still that strong trait that's going to be, uh, you know, carried through through the generations, and you get that commonality of that look to royalty that is all around the world. Um, well, that's that's one thing I want to stop you there. Is we, Johnny, you and I see that all the time in our circles, where uh, we talk about the Nephilim agenda, and it's a very big focus on Indo-European history, white history, um, Indo-Aryan history in regards to the Rephaim, the Nephilim, and we hear people say, well, were Indo-European people all giants? Were they evil? Were they all damned to hell for being white, basically? Well, I don't think anybody is naturally damned. Right. Uh, I think I think you know the first uh, ones that created would have been the most most likely ones to to be in that position. But we all have free choice, and I think if they had chosen to, excuse me, <clears throat> I think if they had chosen to follow God and follow His ways, that you know the atonement of Jesus would would you know cover all the sins of the world. But I don't, you know, whether or not they have the ability to do that or not. Um, so they're not, you know, by, they're not by impl implication, particularly once you get into the generations, because even 
you know, in Old Testament law, even you know, on the fourth or fifth generation, you're not responsible for, you know, the sins of the, of the fathers. So I think that um, everybody on this earth, whether or not they're hybrids or not, has the freedom to choose. And then I leave judgment for God after that. Right. No, I agree. I agree. Um, one thing that I I do wonder, and many of our listeners do as well, when we look at the Catholic Church, we see the existence of saints, and saints are, in many ways, demigods. That's who they are. You know, they they are descendants of Nephilim, maybe not by blood, but by belief, um, by tradition. You know, it's the same way that you know Mary that we see in. You know, I apologize to anybody who's listening, but hey, uh, Mary is the Queen of Heaven. Guess what? In the same way that Ishtar or Asherah is the Queen of Heaven, you know, it's yeah. the same thing. Yep. Um, you know, saints are the same way. Demigods, Nephilim of the quote, Christian veneer. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think it's a bit of an allegory that uh, is, is, and of course the interpretive allegorical approach is part of polytheism. A lot of the, a lot of the saints have done very interesting things in um, the recorded history that, you know, uh, might, some of them even reach into um, bringing people back from the dead. Uh, We get into a lot of the sainthood attributes, maybe not quite as much in the last hundred years or so, but the older ones seems to be, as you say, more of that sort of polytheist raising up of a a god and you know some a pantheon to worship within the church right because they're used in terms of prayers and for honoring on 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 certain days it has a lot of similarities uh that polytheism has in place for their demigods and for their lower gods and then as they go up the hierarchy of the of the host of the rebellious ones well, and they find a lot of root as well in their church, which denies, well, I wouldn't say deny, they actually uh, venerate symbols such as the Star of Remphen. You know, they they believe themselves to be, quote, Judeo-Christian, even though the religion of Judaism that we see today is born out of Babylon. Yeah, and Bab- and, and, as and Heliopolis. Yeah, right. As we're talking about architecture, um, cathedrals. Cathedrals is kind of a central topic in Tartaria, right? Um, these these buildings are really what I call them are are temples in like daily conversation when I'm talking about them. Um, these temples are full of symbolism that are related to Babylon, the Star of Remphan. They are everywhere um, and don't seem to be... Uh, Johnny, help me out here. 
they don't seem to fit with uh, what the supposed belief should be of the time. Right. They're like they don't. Well, they don't fit with yeah, like fourteen hundreds Catholicism, which you would think. These the you're talking about you're talking about the like the um, Notre Dame and um, like even the Vatican. Or, right. This yeah. this gothic quote gothic architecture. None of this seems to fit with what was apparently available to these people at the time. Oh, right. That um, for sure. For a thousand years, mm-hmm. for a thousand years, these people couldn't do these things, but somehow, right. by the glory of God, they were able to build him a temple which he never asked for—a temple that he never asked for <laughs> without any, without any sort of um, lead-up architecture. There's just like there was no like in-between steps. It was like nothing to that, and it's everywhere. Yeah, and this is this. This is the architecture and design and shape and form um, and technology that was, you know, the antediluvian model. It's what the Tartarians did after the flood. I mean, they're the progenitors of these buildings because they control that early elite class and for, you know, and arguably even to this day control it. And then they adorn those temples even in the christian area with non-christian symbols mm-hmm. um but it makes perfect sense i mean just as you know you look at any government building or particularly you know the buildings in washington in terms of that sort of dome structure and that apiothis of george washington looking down i mean that's all polytheist you know you have all of the universities they're built on Greek and mostly Greek and Roman architecture that, you know, honor, honored the pantheon of gods. I mean, it's just this knowledge that was, and as you say, this knowledge was out of place in terms of the architecture used anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You'd I see mean, the you'd palaces see these- that were built, you know, were above most of the technology used everywhere else, but these cathedrals were a whole different level. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, except for maybe like Versailles, which I always found, was it Versailles? Was there, where they didn't have bathrooms until like. Versailles never had bathrooms yeah. and we're looking at places like. <laughs> like what? <laughs> built in the middle of, of Utah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we call the pyram- Utah now. Oh, oh, no. the, the, yes. The, the white city in the middle of Utah out there. Um, totally, totally yes. car- carved out by um, a little religious cult of, of a few thousand people who all happen to be master masons. Apparently, yeah, yeah. that's the story. Yes, apparently, every yeah, settler. We're not, we're not getting the whole story. No, on that. every settler, like like you assume, like because you know when you think gold miner in in um, in California, we've been told that it's Yosemite Sam from Looney Tunes. That's that's who your miners are. And they're out there fighting engines and hunting buffaloes and also um, constructing the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco at the same time. I always yeah. found that. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not supposed to, you're not, you're not supposed to notice that. Right. Right. It's just amazing how that, that well, the, works the, out that way. The yeah. very, in, the very important armory of San Francisco has now become what? Oh my Charming? God. So the the armory is now like the world's largest fetish porn uh, facility. 
Like, <laughs> yeah, studio, excuse me, <laughs> fetish porn studio. Yeah. It's called kink.com. Yeah. I know that because I used to work in San Francisco. Yeah. Just, just flip it over to another part of the organization. Yep. Yeah. They just hand it over. They just hand it yeah. over to the, yeah, to the media department. Well, and, and speaking of San Francisco as well, Gary, uh, one thing that I want to ask you is we've seen pictures, you know, panoramic pictures from apparently <clears throat> pre-1900. Yeah, 1859. Of the city. Or it was 18, that, 1889 was the 13 panel panoramic shot, which um, some of those buildings are still there. <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, there was always there was the earthquake and the fire. Yeah. Right. Those that that city has been pictured many times without inhabitants. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen many pictures of American cities and Russian. We've seen pictures of St. Peter's Square mm-hmm. um, in um, Russia, Red Square now without inhabitants in the middle yeah. of the day. In the middle of the 1800s. I mean, we we talk about reset theory as something that could be true. It appears to be a real thing. I mean, what do, what do you think of these? Well, we, you know, when you when you look at what the makeup of these royal dynasties are and and branch lines all around the world, you know, they inter intermarry, so it's like an inner family, but that doesn't mean that they are not rivals. I mean, they're all directionally wanting to get to the same place, but, and that would be to, you know, have this rendezvous with destiny that we, we understand as the end time. But the problem is this, is that there can only be one new dynasty that's going to control everything into their counterfeit millennium. And all the other families and powers are going to be subservient to that new ruling dynasty. And so there's always that rival that's going on. And so directionally they want to get things done, but you're going to see this messiness overlap as we get through this this new world order that they're trying to to, to set up um, because they all want a bigger piece of the pie. And so you can anticipate from that or deduce from that that it's in their interest to wipe out the history of rivals, to wipe out their mythos, their genealogical history, to make them less of a rival. And I think we've seen that. And I think we saw that at the, you know, the wedge of, of the Jesuits on the explorations around the world and the damage that they did. I think they were working that same European bloodline agenda. But there are other bloodlines around the world, as we've talked about these nations, these Rephaim nations spreading out around the world. And there's bloodlines like, uh, you know, that are still in place today where you get like Xi of China, who, you know, that spelling of XI that actually comes out of the word Xi or Xia uh, for the Xia dynasties and 
with him particularly, he's from the Western Shaw dynasty. And these are the bloodlines and they're the same families that the Lee comes out of. It's the same bloodlines that go right back to the dragon creator gods. You have Putin who thinks he's and probably is, is an out of wedlock uh, bloodline created by his great grandfather in about 1850 of the original Tartarian um, czars of of Kiev, which is why he has so so much of an interest in in taking that back. And his name comes from the Putyanin of the Ryurus dynasties of the Tartarian empires that we said you know originally set up the uh, the Moscow. Uh, you know, as the new center and with the Romanovs taking over. So if you look at then what the rival clan, uh, clans have done in the Euro in the European area, not only were they wiping out dynasties in the new world, they were wiping out dynasties through social masonry with uh, the establishment of communism and with the establish establishment of national socialism. And they were doing damage to, I think, rival bloodlines because they're getting closer to that rendezvous with destiny. And I would, ex I would expect to see more of that. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so national socialism and communism were kind of like, um, sort of created out of the same, the same bloodlines. I thought well, National Socialism it was all was created by the secret societies and funded by the banking um, conglomerates ruled by the Rothschilds, who were set up after, you know, because originally the Bauer family and they were mm. set up after the fall of the Templars to have control over banking outside the, and uh, they were, the Catholic Church. And they, they, and they were Edomites. Yeah, they well, were they Edomites. Yeah, they, were, they, yeah, they, they were. could be, that's for sure. Well, yeah, the Rothschilds because the Edomites much. were intermarried with with yeah the Edomites were intermarried with the Horing, which were you know a branch of the Ruffing, right? That's where you get the Elven Aleph bloodlines, the Dukes of Edom from, and they were intimately you know connected um, also with the Mitanni dynasties and the uh, Kassite dynasties, and so yeah, you get you get these these. Aleph kingdoms, which are the elven bloodlines where that sort of root comes from. Um, and all of those genealogies and things are, are still kept and understood within the, uh, within the, uh, you know, the, the, the bloodline cult and culture uh, of the, of, of the Royals and what's going on when you have after world war one, you have the Kaisers wiped out, you have a significant bloodline that is now toppled and not as powerful. They're probably repositioned in, in the back rooms and behind the scenes now, but they are, you know, part of that bloodline that Prince Charles takes his bloodline through to the Hanover's down to Vlad the Impaler, who is part of Ordo Draconis, as being one of his ancestors, and that's part of that sort of Tuatha Dudanan that comes up the Danube River expansion of, of, of the Tartarians or the Scythians, the Tuatha Dudanan. And Vlad the Impaler was your typical red hair, hazel eyed, pale skinned 
um, Scythian who takes his his uh, bloodlines back to the Scythians and to specifically through uh, a specific tribe of the Scythians, the Agritheria, um, who is apparently in their genealogies goes back to uh, a bloodline of you know coming from Hercules. And uh, back to the uh, Tamiel or Kezadia, because they're thought to be the same angel in, in those circles as as their godfather. So, you know, this this is this is a tactic that they'll do within their own sort of, uh, I guess, tactics. And then you look at, you know, with with Xi coming back to power, um, but you have to go back again and understand that communism you know wiped out the shah dynasty or tried to wipe it out so i mean it's been a formidable weapon of social masonry to destroy their rivals and Hmm. now what you see going on in the world is is that these other bloodlines are pushing back and they're saying no we want a larger piece and we're not going to be dominated by the european bloodlines hmm yeah i had heard how um how that they had originally split Europe up into the different bloodlines and like, which, you know, which ones controlled Germany and which ones didn't end up in Russia. And then there was the, uh, the Anglos. Um, but I never really put it, heard it put that way. That was all right. What were you going to say, Reinhardt? Well, we see, well, I was going to say, we see, you know, the bloodline of the dragon go very clearly through European Royal history you know, up through uh, Hungary, up through Romania. But, Johnny, you and I see a lot of times a a pushback <clears throat> in regards to European history as if we're, you know, we're destroying Indo-European and therefore American history, Right. Oh yeah, we see that saying that you know these these people have not done these things, or these people were in service to you know a demon or demons. Um, it's it gets annoying that <laughs> <laughs> we've d- we've done this over the years, but we see it's a tradition going straight from the pre-flood world through the Scythians uh, into Nimrod. Babylon, Assyria, and these and the, these cultures all had contact with each other. It's it's ridiculous to assume that they didn't. Um, but from from Scythia to Sumer to um, to Canaan, Israel to Egypt, Ireland, all of these cultures did have contact, and these cultures that worshipped these pantheistic beings worship the same beings. You know, Shemiaza is a a central being, chrono-Saturn, kind of, as a concept. Um, And that's that's one of the things that people don't understand, is is that the version of history that we get is that these people had no idea what each other was doing. At the royal families, at the (laughs) ruling class, they communicated and traveled amongst each other continuously and also intermarried. And they kept track of the powerful bloodlines in all of those 
sort of related uh, empires because it was important for them to understand who the purebloods were and who the lesser ones was and who you know they wanted to be you know working with and who they didn't want to be working with and we're led to believe that they they were doing everything independently uh, that 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 wasn't the case. I mean, they had they fought between each other, but that was only for their only you know for their individual power hungry objectives, right? But they they were in continuous contact with each other. Guys, I thought we lost it there for a second. Well, that is definitely a ton of information there, Gary. And um, man, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this a second time because I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff in here that I have no idea what you're talking about and I'm going to have to look up. Definitely a ton of new information for lots of people here. Well, that's okay. So, well, it's a, it's a, it's a subject that, uh, you know, if people haven't, you know, heard it before or heard it in those sort of terms before, it, it's kind of a you know, bit of a shocker, but it starts to, it starts to answer a lot of things that, you know, sort of sit in the back of your mind and say, well, you know, how, how did that come about? Why don't we know, why don't we know more about these people? And how come they all worship the same types of gods and did the same types of things and, but yet they weren't supposedly connected in some way or some manner. I mean, it's just, you can't look at even the misinformation that has been sent down and not understand that the interpretation of that information is manipulated so that you don't dig deeper. But that's the whole idea behind the brainwashing is to hide everything in front of you, but not, uh, and understand that after they brainwash the people, they won't understand what what really happened there or what really was written there. So they'll understand how they've been told to, uh, how they've been told to interpret it. Well, and that's what, that's what we work off of in so many ways is, you know, the idea that our history, religion, uh, that there is a thing so-called Judaism um, has been created for us. You know, that the, we, we deny what is given to us as quote history um, just based on on what these people do, who they are, the membership that they uh, that they claim. So it's amazing that some people will deny certain things based on ownership. They may deny certain things based on, let's say, rabbinical Juda- Judaism, but they may accept. Uh, uh, Jesuit Christianity, right? And the histories that they provide. Yep. So that's one thing that we we are trying to, you know, establish and and set forth. Yeah, and and for people who don't realize it is is that, you know, the history of the peoples that you know get uh, raised up to, you know, hero status. Um, those aren't your average individuals. They're always bloodlines. And even if you have a story about somebody who's poor um, and he becomes a hero in a story, it always comes out he was a lost person of the bloodline. So it always works back to 
the ruling class that has written these these histories and the literature right from the beginning after the flood. Right. I mean, how easy is it to control history when you start when you're the ones that start writing it in the first place? Yeah, exactly. They controlled do you, do you all those mind? Uh, hi, Gary. Do you guys mind if I just ask one quick question before we end the show? Sure. I've been just listening to you. I'm sorry. Nice to meet you. Um, I was just wondering on your opinion, you know, if this is kind of a game played between the adversary and the creator, uh, Alihim, do, are we non-players? Do, do we have any pieces on the board? Well, we have the most important piece on the board with Jesus. So, um, and I'll, I'll back that up by saying is that we need to understand the angelic rebellion as being the complete context as to what goes on in this world and that the creation of the Adamites is the resolution to the angelic rebellion. And so all that interplay that has happened since the creation of Adam is the response of the angelic realm to ensure or try to ensure that humankind will not be the resolution to their rebellion that can convicts them to the lake of fire and that we will not be raised up to be like angels in the future time. So we're not useless sideline players. We are at the center. We are, but it all plays out through free choice. And so God is greater than free choice. So this takes the time uh, to be fulfilled. And it plays out on a time that God has ordained because he's greater than free choice and greater than time. He knows the period. And so that all the names that were written in the book of life uh, before creation will be uh, permitted to make that choice to stay in the book of life or have your name erased from the book of life because everything's their free choice. So we're, we are the most important player to come on, but we're the one that is continually being attacked so that the angelic, the rebellious angelic ones would not go to the lake of fire. Unfortunately, they didn't anticipate the resurrection. And from then on, the rebellion was over, but they continue out of vengeance now to do as much damage as they can. But no, we should not ever dismiss um, our our position on on the chessboard. And I think the chessboard is this you know classic um, dualism that goes on between uh, the polytheist people that rule the world. You have the black and the white. They have white witch. The evil witch, you have black magic, white magic. That's the rivalry that we're talking about, just different uh, throne rooms on earth. And as they represent the pantheon of the gods that they represent that are amongst the council of the gods, uh, you know, that they, that they worship. So just another sort of analogy in terms of what's going on in the world and we're the pawns that they're sacrificing, but and they're utilizing it, but at the end of the day, neither one of those two forces, black or white, win because we're not in that game. It's just a temporary thing that God permits until things play out, and He knows how He knows how it will end. All right. You're right. The the yin and the yang is yep. really it's a it's an alchemical kabbalistic Taoism creation, right? Yep. 
it's it's the dualism of, of polytheism. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Gary Wayne. Appreciate it um, immensely. Uh, we would love to have you back on for a Q&A type thing on a live stream if you want. Absolutely. I always like to do that. Excellent. We will so set just that up. A matter of just a matter of getting a time. So did you want me to send you some dates uh, that I have available um, be down the road for April or, or May? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I'll send those off to you. Right on. Thank you very much. Okay. Gary. All right. Thanks. You guys have yourself a very good weekend. And it's been, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Gary. Yep. Nice. That was Gary Wayne, ladies and gentlemen. And Grognak. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You get your question in. Reinhardt, you're right back there. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Gary Wayne. Next no, we're still time recording. I'll ask him what his favorite D class is. We're still recording. Good lord. So what do you think there, Reinhardt? You had your interview with Gary Wayne. No, it was a wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, it was a great conversation. Um man, we had a lot of questions regarding topics like Tartaria hidden history that, you know, he doesn't hit often. Grognak, you and I have talked uh, a lot recently about, you know, his, his shows. And I think really we've, we've <laughs> hit stuff that nobody else has heard. I Not think many so. People. I think so. Um, yeah. 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 No, we're not going to ask him about flat earth. Ask him about flat earth. It's not even on the list. <laughs> Look, I, it's all right. All right. It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. He said the hey. F word. He he said firmament. He said firmament. Yeah. What he said was hey, he thinks it's a lot I'll bigger take, than people think. I'll take so. agnostic. I'll take agnostic. I'll take agnostic. Yeah. I think that he, yeah. um, he be, doing the agnostic thing though. What did he say that like the th things that they, they, uh, after the flood, what, uh, the, the main objectives were and, one of them was to um, remove God, right? Right. And one thing that I think is remove God from the scripture, which the scripture tells us um, that, you know, the earth is a geostationary realm. Right. Right. It's not heliocentric. Right. Which is removing God. And that's like one of the things. And that's, that's why I, I don't think being a, personally ag agnosticism here is like, I don't know. It's easy. It's easy yeah. So I, me. so I do disagree with him there. Yeah, I do too. Because I mean, honestly, like people are like, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Okay. If it's not that big of a deal, so make a decision. I'm not trying to like, you know, not, not Gary, but just, I'm, in, I'm in pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I have something up on my phone, which is <laughs> literally a study. Somebody did called, uh, why does it matter? It does. <laughs> that's the that's the whole study. And, that was, that was the entire study. It does. Period. The end. I mean, right. Edward, thank you for coming Edward, to my TED talk. Edward Henry. Edward Henry, who we all know and love, who may be a Calvinist, uh, but still. Whoa, man! You, you know, don't have to cuss him like that. Case for why does it matter? Right. But you you don't have to. He's a Calvinist. 
He's the Calvinist. I don't even yes. know. I and honestly, he, at he this point the in the game, it, why Calvinism is is why Calvinism is what? Oh, just why Calvinism is the way that it should go with uh, geocentrism. Mm. Right on. All right. I have a visitor again. This is awesome. All right. And they're off. So, yes, Gary Wayne, everybody. Um, I'm gonna, Like I said, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to that interview because there's a lot of stuff that I was like, whoa. <laughs> we covered a lot of stuff. All of our, all of our bros who you know, deny certain things and talk about the Scythians. I would really encourage them to listen to this interview over and over again uh, to understand who the Scythians really were. That's something I see all the time in our chat is the Scythians and the YouTube channel Asha Logos. Mm. Asha Logos actually does a great job of describing the Scythians and their history and fits perfectly with Gary Wayne's work and with others in the same regard um just because these people were indo-european doesn't make them moral people and just because they weren't moral people does not mean that they were not of a certain ancestry right right which we didn't get to ask him i wanted to ask gary it's like so i I thought the whole purpose of the flood was to like wipe out everybody except for the people in the boat so, where did the other people come well, from? Well, I think he, I think he answered that. Did he? I think he answered that, just not in a, uh, just not in a way that would sit well with the Arianity. No, 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 no. What did he say? Say that. I didn't hear him say that. What did he say? Must have been one of the parts I missed. Well, we we talked as much, and he was very clear that these societies were Indo-European, Indo-Aryan. In the same way that Robert Sepper does talk about, right? That. No, I and know. And even though like, Robert Sepper does have the where history did they that come does, from, if um, there was only what twelve people, he has said in a previous. I don't want to put words in his mouth while he's not here, but I've heard him in a previous interview say that the four major races come from Noah and his family on the boat. So that'd be something I ask him another time. Mm. On the boat, the ark, right? The and boat. we would love to have him on another time. Yeah, for sure. We're going. Yeah, so yeah, we got. We should send him a shirt. No, settle down. Everybody buy shirts. Everybody buy shirts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ain't sending. Ain't sending anybody shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we went the whole show, and I, I ruined it at the end by, by dropping a dropping a. It's it's the end of the family friendly. Wow. Hour anyway. Wow. Yeah, I ruined the show with an <laughs> s bomb. Oh. All right, we're going to get out of here. Uh, we have a creepy pasta for you at the end of this, and uh, we'll see y'all later. Time travel makes you gay. Have you ever been driving down a familiar road and noticed a landmark that stands out to you? In the city, you know where you are by the intersection or by your favorite stores and coffee shops. However, things are a little different on country roads. When driving down an unnamed path, you rely on natural landmarks like a unique-looking tree or an old truck on the side of the road. For me on the highway leading home, my marker was an old stone windmill. 
It had been standing there in a field on the side of the road since I was a small child. Not once in all those years did I ever see someone manning those fields. No tractor tilling the land, no lonely farmer with sweat on his brow. I always assumed it was simply abandoned and never bothered to ask about it. Yet despite my lack on connection, I always noted the lone windmill every time I passed it. It was a strange enigma that baffles me to this day. The windmill became a subject of many rumors at my local elementary school. Stories and legends went around and around, each more over the top than the last. Some say it belonged to an old farmer who killed his family and then hung himself from the rafters. Another story was that the building was alive. If you ever witnessed the old and rusty blades make a full rotation, then someone you love would die. Eventually, the allure of the mystery became too much, so a group of my friends and I decided to see if the rumors were true. In the warm summer sunlight, we ventured forth because none of us would dare to come at night. Every step towards the stone structure filled us with a strange sense of dread. The wind was completely still as even God feared those blades moving. We entered the shadow of its looming structure and even the August heat couldn't stop the chill from running down our spines. Just as I reached for the rotting door, a massive gust of wind blasted us and we heard the groaning of the ancient blades turning. We all ran with our metaphorical tails hanging between our legs. As I entered adulthood and moved away from my country home, the windmill vanished from my thoughts and my memories. As real fears such as bills and building careers rose, the imagined fears of youth seemed meaningless. That was until my father took ill and I had to drive back to his country home to see him. Driving those old deserted roads was like traveling backwards in time. As pavement turned to dirt and streetlight turned to the cold light of the full moon, I felt like I was leaving my adult life behind. I was that little boy looking out the school bus window again. I felt joy and nostalgia blowing through me. That was until I saw my familiar landmark. Jutting out of the earth like a man-made mountain was the lone windmill. With its stone base and metal blades gleaming in the moonlight, it looked just as it always had. You would think that as an adult it might seem smaller somehow, but no. It still towered over me, both figuratively and literally. Seventeen years it had been since I had laid eyes on it, yet the fear and the awe of it slipped over me like a familiar robe. Before I knew or understood what I was doing, I had pulled off to the side of the road and got out of my car. Questions rolled around and around in my brain. Why did this windmill draw me in so much? Why did it draw my attention every time I passed it? But the most important one of all was why I was so scared of it. Sure, as a child, the rumors and abandoned nature of it all made it seem scary, but why after all these years was I still so afraid? I knew that I had to get moving to see my father, but I also knew that I had to settle this once and for all. It was the mystery of it that kept drawing me in. All I had to do was go inside and my fear would melt away. All I would find would be an old dusty windmill and some vacant cobwebs. Once I saw that, I could move on with my life and close this silly chapter forever. I went back to my car and grabbed my emergency flashlight. With a determined nod, I made my way towards the dark shadow of the landmark. As I moved forward, I was brought back to that day as a child. I could feel that same dread sweeping over me. The idea of approaching the structure at night would have had ten-year-old me diving under the covers. However, I was no longer the cowardly child, but a full-grown man with an understanding of the world and what was real. If that was the case, though, why did I find myself shaking so much? I looked up at the stagnant blades against the light of the moon and dreaded them moving. I could feel my spine just waiting to tingle and shiver. I shook my head instead of my body and trudged forward. This would end now one way or another. I grasped the cold handle of the old wooden door and pushed it open. A grating sound of the degraded hinges squeaking could have woken the dead. I felt my heart pounding despite my best efforts to be brave. 
Slowly but surely, I lifted my flashlight to the doorframe, and with a sense of relief, I saw exactly what I thought I would. There was old rotting floor covered in dust, and in the corner was a dirty web with a solitary spider sitting in the middle. I chuckled at my fear and moved to turn around to leave when I heard a loud creak. I almost dropped my flashlight in shock. Memories of running back to the road flooded my mind, and every instinct I had told me to do just that. However, I was not a child, and I would not resort to fear and irrationality. I turned back and began inching my way inside, praying that the rotting floorboards would withstand my weight. I placed my foot on the ground and heard it groan, but it held true. I let out a sigh of relief and began shining my light around the room. It was bigger than it looked from the outside, but almost completely empty. There wasn't so much as a rat roaming the floors. What the hell even made that noise, I asked myself. In answer, the sound rounded again from above me. Slowly, I raised my flashlight until it fell upon a pair of dead and blank eyes staring back at me. My blood went cold, and again my instincts told me to run, but my legs would not move. Instead, I moved my arm up, illuminating the haggard face of an old man. My light continued up to his arms, which were splayed out wide by two pieces of wood. His torso bore cuts which looked like ruins engraved in his skin. The legend of the hanged farmer rang in my mind, but I knew this wasn't that. That old man would be nothing but bones and dust by now, and yet this body was fresh, maybe a few weeks gone. I knew I had to call the police. This man's family deserved at least a little bit of peace. I lowered my light to grab my phone, but as I did, I caught another foot hanging at the other end of the room. I shakily rose my arm to reveal the hanged corpse of a young woman. Her body was fresher, maybe only a matter of days. I continued to shake, knowing and dreading what I had to do next. I forced my arm up, and as it rose, my jaw dropped. Strung from the bar of the windmill were dozens of corpses in different stages of decay. All the corpses had some sort of unknown symbol carved into their stomachs. Slowly, the bodies swayed, and almost unison and dark realization hit me. Inverted crosses. They were made into inverted crosses. I shone my light up a little higher on the ceiling above me, and drawn in blood was a pentagram. I could feel my roadside burger threatening to come up as the stench of death hit me. How I had not noticed the stench when I came in was beyond me. Maybe I hadn't wanted to smell it. It was in this moment that I discovered what terror was. Not some made-up childlike fear, not some adult anxiety, but true, unadulterated terror. Every bone in my body turned to lead, my blood froze to ice, and my heart beat like a pounding drum. At once, I was that ten-year-old boy all over again, and I ran out of the room as fast as I could. As I made it to the field outside, when I heard a sound that stopped me in my tracks, the windmill's blades began to move. The creak was almost deafening in the silence of the night. That was the part of what made it so shocking. There was no wind whatsoever. I found my head turning on its own accord towards that rusty grating noise. The blades slowly turned a full 360 degrees and then stopped as if they never had moved. All rational thought had left my body and all I wanted to do was get out of there. I jumped in my car and pelted down the dirt road as fast as my car would take me. Even after several minutes, I still found myself panicked. I kept checking my rearview mirror, half expecting the windmill to come rising over the hill like a giant movie lizard. Finally, when I turned down the road to my father's home, I felt some relief. That was until I pulled in the driveway and I saw my younger sister standing on the porch crying. It turns out my father passed away not 15 minutes ago. Had I come straight there, I would have been there when it happened. Instead, my sister faced my father's dying breath alone as he whispered about the winds blowing for him. I missed saying goodbye to my father and that guilt will haunt me for the rest of my days. 
I told the police about what I found in the windmill and they did a full investigation. The bodies were connected to several drifters and missing persons in the area. They found bone fragments scattered around and they believed that this had been going on for decades. They are investigating the murderer, but I doubt they'll ever find them. If their lair is ever discovered, they'll simply move on to a new one. There are so many other abandoned buildings out there, so many dense forests, so many dark caves. How many landmarks do people see every day on their commute, always being noticed but never questioned? What dark secrets might they hold? <laughs>